Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Dada, with episode 497 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and we have a quite unfortunate show for you today because unfortunately coming out of the WWE merger with Endeavor becoming TKO Group Holdings, as many expected eventually would happen. WWE released more than a dozen and a half talents on Thursday. Not only that, WWE also announced a huge premium live event in Australia coming in 2024 and a brand new TV deal for WWE SmackDown. Beyond all of that, We're also going to hit our normal topics on this Thursday edition of Getting Over. We're going to break down everything that happened in NXT and everything that happened across the entire week in AEW, most notably AEW Dynamite Grand Slam on Wednesday. So when I say that this is a loaded edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, I know that sounds like a repeat because I say it so frequently here, but there is absolutely no doubt that is the case for today's show. Before we get into all of it, allow me off the top quickly to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please go ahead and leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that stuff. Again, on Twitter at Getting Overcast overcast. And please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for only $5 a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over sign up. You will get news posts every week. We have covered the WWE TV deal extensively in these news posts for better and slightly for worse. But over the last few months, we've been talking about it there. And we also do bonus audio for you, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, as frequently as I possibly can around the major TV shows. It's basically a five-minute instant reaction recap for Raw, SmackDown, NXT, AEW, Dynamite. Like I said, deliver it as frequently as we can. Buymeacoffee.com slash getting over and sign up. Now, folks, the Silver King is not alone today because of the huge breaking WWE news vintage Chris Vanini has joined the show. And Chris, it's unfortunate that you're here under the circumstances of us once again talking about WWE releases. We were so excited when Triple H took over creative and obviously filled out the bottom of the roster with a lot of talent, many of whom were there for depth purposes, but of course others were there to become legitimate WWE superstars heavily involved in programming. Uh, But we were so excited that they had kind of changed course, right? They had gone away from the releases, moved toward the signings. That said, it was, I think, fair to say that there was some fat to be trimmed from WWE's roster. It not had gotten too large like it used to be, you know, three or four years ago, but it certainly was larger than television could sustain. Uh, So on Thursday, at least at the time that this show is being taped, and it's certainly possible that more names could get added, and we hope that is not the case, obviously. But WWE has released 17 superstars again at the time of this taping. Uh, From what I understand, these releases are directly related to the merger becoming TKO Group Holdings. It is not a circumstance where 
WWE is like bloodletting and just reducing a ton of costs and, and cutting obviously 30, 40, however many people. This is specifically merger related. Uh, I think a hundred people or so, perhaps a little bit more, were fired out of WWE's uh, Stanford office and other people who are actually employees of the organization. That happened last week. So this is kind of the second part of that, of course, coming to the talent department. All of the talents who were released, they do have the 90-day payment clauses. They will continue to get paid for the next three months unless there's less time on their contracts or they choose to leave immediately. And they can make that choice. They can leave right away, not get paid, but almost no one does that. And because that is part of the clause, these are not no-compete clauses. If you hear that term thrown around, it is not accurate. Yes, while they are still paid by WWE, these wrestlers and talents and superstars cannot do any other wrestling work. That is true. But they can choose at any time to stop being paid by WWE. That's just how these contracts work. Now, Chris, like I said, there are 17 superstars who have lost their jobs. It's an awful situation. We never like to do these episodes but we do need to discuss each one individually, what they brought to the table, and what we think might be their next steps beyond WWE. For me, there are, I would say, three notable names, two in particular, that we're going to talk about at the top here. The rest of it, and let's speak in a general sense before we get into the individual names, Chris. It felt to me like it was clearing out the bottom of the roster, the true undercard of WWE, with a lot of people who either weren't being used on TV ever or weren't being on used on TV recently by Paul Levesque. Yeah, look, we, we had a big show about a month ago looking at the Triple H era one year later. And I think you made a, a point to say, you know, here are some people that could be doing more that aren't doing much. And and I responded with, but where? Like there was no root, like right. <laughs> TV's full. You know, we're, we're not... We're not relying on Roman Reigns to fill up two thirds of a SmackDown anymore. And it's just like uh, they're loaded. So I, I'm not ultimately surprised it comes with a merger, a corporate merger. These things happen. It's terrible for everybody. Don't want anybody to lose their jobs. I don't want AEW to cut its roster, even though we talk about how bloated it is. So uh, all in all, simply don't like this happening at all. Um, but in terms of who was released, only a couple of these really surprised me. I think that's the exact way to kind of put it. And that's not to suggest that the ones who don't surprise us aren't talented or don't have futures or whatever the case might be. It's just we watch WWE programming 52 weeks a year, you know, five hours plus NXT every single year. And you know who's being used, you know, who's not being used, you know, who's being used well, you know, who's not being used well. And sometimes that is the talent's fault. Sometimes more frequently than not, I would say it's creative's fault. They're not being given opportunities and it can be a vicious cycle where you're not on TV, so you're not getting over. But how are you supposed to get over if you're not on TV? And then if you're on TV and you get one chance and you don't get over, how are you supposed to build off that? You can't really. So that is part of the issue, I would say, with some of these talents. But let's go ahead and start with the two biggest names, I would say, and then we'll get into certainly everyone. The biggest name by far, at least as far as I'm concerned, is Dolph Ziggler, who has spent basically 20 years with WWE, a two-time world heavyweight champion, eight-time mid-card champion, four-time tag team champion, NXT champion, Money in the Bank winner, who had one of the best cash-ins ever, probably top three of all time, and the 22nd Triple Crown winner in WWE 
history. There's no one else on that list that comes anywhere near these types of accolades. At one time, Ziggler was probably one of the top 10 wrestlers going about a decade ago. Independent wasn't as uh, easy to access back in 2013 as it is now, but he was up there. 2013 was a huge year for Ziggler. Uh, The John Cena feud was a crowning moment for him. He ends with the second most matches in WWE history behind only Kane, which is wild when you think about that. And Chris, you would think that this would be the guy who would wind up being a WWE lifer, but I guess we cannot just expect that these days. He was doing a ton of projects outside WWE, primarily comedy. He had a lot of time off. Ziggler had been on a seven-figure deal to the best of my understanding, despite not actually doing a lot of work. That's not his fault. That's WWE's fault, creative's fault for not using him. But when it comes to cutting talent, someone who's on a seven-figure deal, who's wrestling a handful of times a year or is in one feud a year that lasts a month or two months, it does make sense that that is a talent that you would want to part ways with. In terms of his future, Chris, AEW makes too much sense, both with his brother already there, the freedom to cut promos, the type of awesome matches he could have with like Orange Cassidy, Kenny Omega, Jay White. I would truly be shocked if Ziggler does not wind up in AEW. Yeah, look, I I got back into wrestling around 2013-ish, that period. And that time, and like the couple of years after, I was leading that Dolph Ziggler bandwagon that, that everybody has. This dude was like the hottest like internet, you know, Everybody wants to push this guy. The cash-in against Del Rio, one of the greatest cash-ins of all time. The Survivor Series match where Sting returned. Maybe the pinnacle, maybe one of the pinnacle moments of his career. It mm-hmm. felt like that was the moment they were going to come back to him, but they didn't. And you realize as time went on that he was just filling the spot that was meant to be Roman Reigns, who either, I don't remember that was a, a PED test or a... Or a hernia or something like that, but Roman got pulled. Ziggler went in, the sole survivor, that big comeback, and then they just did nothing with him. And they retconned the whole, uh, you know, keep your jobs thing a couple months, a couple weeks later, and mm-hmm. John Cena had to do it. So didn't go anywhere, uh, but but really solid on the mic, great wrestler, a guy you could rely on. You know, the Goldberg match he had, probably one of the best Goldberg matches, you know, since old Goldberg kind of made his whole run. So dude's really talented. But like we said, I couldn't remember last time I saw him on TV. So like, that's why it's ultimately not a surprise. Felt like they missed the boat on him, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. And you just knew they weren't going to go back, which is unfortunate. Um, In terms of a future, not going to say this for everybody here, but AEW, you're right, does make sense for a guy like this, a personality and a worker. Uh, they can use that even though it's a, a very big roster over there too. He's also done like Fox News hits and stuff like that. He's kind of branched out into other things. So I'm, I'm sure he'll have plenty of uh, opportunities as well. But uh, Ziggler, a, a true worker's worker, a guy you could always rely on um, and just always a steady hand and uh, he will be missed. Absolutely. He had two matches um, in May on Raw, won a double count out to J.D. McDonough on May 29th. So that's his last match in WWE. By the way, that match lasted one minute. Uh, The other one was an Intercontinental Battle Royal. Before then, he didn't wrestle until before WrestleMania. Uh, He fought Gunther on uh, the March 27th Raw. And going back, looking at this year, 
really the only month where he was on TV more than twice in a month was uh, January. And even before that, going back to the end of 2022, he had a couple matches in August and then a couple match, one match in October, one match in November. So he just was not being used with any regularity. And again, if you're in a seven figure contract, it just it makes yeah. sense, even though it's not great yeah. for him, obviously. And before that, he did NXT, you know, and it had a really great. solid run, I thought, uh, with yeah. Braun Breaker. What he did in NXT with Braun Breaker helped make Braun and helped uh, legitimize yep. him. So, no, I agree with that for sure. He he was very useful in NXT, and I, I kind of wish he had a longer run down there. Um, it would have worked out well, I think, if he did. But so that's Dolph Ziggler. Uh, Mustafa Ali got released uh, eight years in WWE, never won a title at any level, including when he was in the cruiserweight division. It just always felt like they missed opportunity after opportunity with him, including as a cruiserweight, the hacker gimmick that they never paid off. And then recently, as Triple H took over, it seemed like they're actually going to do something with Ali now. And then they just didn't. He had that storyline going on Raw with like Ziggler, actually, and they never paid it off. They just kept it going. Uh, He asked for his release last year. I was told that this is not a release, but a mutual parting of ways. They said, hey, if you want out, we'll let you out at this point. Uh, Clearly, he was involved in a program in NXT. And it's somewhat ironic because for those who may not be aware or maybe didn't listen to our Tuesday show, Dragon Lee was gifted a North American championship match this coming Monday on Raw. Dominic Mysterio was the current champion. And Ali cut a promo Tuesday on NXT 48 hours ago, less than that from when we're taping the show. He criticized that booking. He was furious about it. He said it made no sense how... Dragon Lee lost a title match and lost a number one contendership to him, but was getting a title match before him. And that was great. Ali planned to be at Raw on Monday. I was pleased that he addressed it in character for storyline reasons. It fit with the gimmick that he was doing. And what's disappointing most about this, and again, if Ali left on his own accord, it was mutual, then fine. But Ali in NXT right now was finally doing the gimmick that he had been pitching for years. He was just doing it in NXT. And it was working. He was awesome. And finally, maybe for the first time, he was truly showing what he could do over an extended period of time. And in the midst of that, now he's out. But again, if he was agreeable to it, then good for him. He got what he wanted. I would love to see Ali tear up the independents like Matt Cardona. He could do incredible working on his own. If not, I think he'd get way more attention and opportunity in impact than he would in AEW. I don't think him going to AEW makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah, look, he... Mustafali is basically Dolph Ziggler without the accomplishments. Um, Fair. Or, or, <laughs> I know it became a thing where every other week you thought, this is it, this is going to be the Mustafali push, and it just was never coming. I had given up on him getting a push uh, a long time ago. The number one thing that pops out to me when I'll think about his WWE career is the wrestlemania 36 uh pre-show in new orleans the match uh yeah the pre-show match where he had the the sparkly mask on and stuff like that and the the hand thing that was awesome that was a really really cool look but just you know for whatever reason they they wouldn't go with him i I agree into impact makes more sense than aew for him i'd also say just in general like the independent scene and what Matt Cardona did is very, very unique and different than almost anybody in wrestling because yes. 
he has the the major figures thing like he had made himself a personality he was the internet champion forever like he had something built up and then the wrestling is kind of working alongside it and nobody else really i think kind of has that infrastructure in place so it's kind of difficult to say oh just go be matt cardona because i think that's kind of almost uh kind of dismissing what Matt Cardona has built, which is very, very unique. So Mustafa Ali, incredibly talented guy. Wish he would have gotten a shot. Um, just ultimately never did. And it was pretty clear a while ago that it wasn't going to happen. To the point that you made about Cardona, it's also very difficult to do what Cardona is doing. It, it's oh, yeah. It requires, I mean, you're talking about booking yourself and making all these travel plans yourself and getting yourself over and having promotions buy into you. But Ali, with his passion for wrestling, his ability to be a great character actor, his quality of wrestling in the ring. He has the same kind of profile, I guess is the best way of putting it, like Cardona does to have success going on his own independently. And look what Cardona's done right now. There, I mean, I don't know about AEW, whether they've made him offers and he's declined them or if WWE has reached out, but you could totally see Cardona moving into either of those organizations at any point he so chooses now more so than ever when he was, you know, Zack Ryder coming out of WWE. So this is a great opportunity for Mustafa Ali to prove everyone wrong. There are some of us who have been fans of his for a long time that have been saying we can't wait for him to get an opportunity, I thought, in WWE to prove his doubters wrong. Now he has it outside of WWE. Best of luck to Mustafa Ali. I interviewed him a while back. Actually, I interviewed Dolph Ziggler as well a while back. Both really nice guys. Ali, great head on his shoulders. I wish him the best as well. Uh, we'll move to the third release. Again, these the rest of these are not really in much order, but it's how I have them written down. Uh, Shelton Benjamin was released. Never properly used in WWE during this run. He's also never been a great promo. Less than seven years in this second run with the company. And obviously he had a really good two-year run with Cedric Alexander and her business with Bobby Lashley and MVP. Sad to see him go. He's worked pretty much everywhere before. So maybe he could be a ring of honor hire for AEW who makes sporadic TV appearances just because he's a veteran name and he can put on good matches with other people. I just don't think they need to hire another guy who's almost 50. He's 48 years old. Maybe wow. he goes to impact or something like that. He looks like he's 38, but yeah, he is 48. Yeah. So it's like, could he find a role in AEW? Yeah, I guess, but he doesn't bring anything to the table really that they don't have already. So Ring of Honor, maybe. Impact, maybe. He's definitely going to continue wrestling. Um, and he took it really well based on his social media. Sad to see him go. Another one that I just, I get it. I did not realize he was almost 50. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is, well, I think it was pretty obvious when Bobby Lashley teamed up with the Street Profits that the dream of another Hurt Business was finally officially dead. Uh, so this is, again, ultimately not a surprise. Really talented guy. Has had a lot of great moments. Hadn't seen him on TV in a while. Um, dude's close to retirement, I hope so. So I don't, I don't know what's next. Right. I would hope that wherever he goes, he's making sporadic appearances. It's not like a consistent full-time job. But, you know, hey, if you want to get paid, you get paid. And if he can keep going, he can keep going. Uh, Rick Boogs got released. It was clear after he returned post-injury that Triple H just did not really have plans for him. They did the quick bit with Elias. That really didn't do much of anything. Obviously, the gimmick with Shinsuke Nakamura worked well. That's how he's going to be remembered on the main roster. But as much as I was entertained by Boogs, and you guys know, like I was booging out here on the podcast and I was booging out when he was in NXT. I, I thought this guy had an immensely high ceiling, but the ceiling was really 
only so high because he just was not a great wrestler in the ring and he wasn't great on mic either. And the gimmick that he gave us on TV, that's him. That's him dialed up to 12 or 15 or whatever. So I don't know really what else he would have done. He did become a pitch man for WWE. He was in a number of different marketing uh, efforts. He did something Mm -hmm. with Snickers. He did something with Mike's Hard Lemonade, I think. But I could see him getting brought back because of that at some point to do like a hybrid type of role or maybe just do marketing, maybe something along the lines of like what Titus O'Neil does, except instead of community outreach, it's for marketing. But I just don't see him coming back and being a full-time talent in WWE. And I don't know where he could go and make a impact, no pun intended, when I say it in that case. He did the uh, Old Spice stuff. Old Spice, well that's what it was too, that. yeah. Um, him and Nakamura, incredible tag team. I was at, I, I was at that uh, WrestleMania 38 uh, when he got hurt, um, but they came out with the Mike Sard Lemonade. Like that was as over as those guys were opening a WrestleMania is what, what they did. And when he came back and they did not put him back with Nakamura, it felt like that might be it. I still don't know why they didn't. I love what Nakamura is doing now, but it took like months and months and months before they did anything with Nakamura. I, I was very surprised they didn't put the two of them back together because it was great. Him playing Nakamura's theme song, incredible gimmick. Like so over Rick Boogs, like with the speaker and everything. Like I was stunned that Triple H didn't bring that back. I don't know what the reason was, but that was such a cool and over gimmick and team that they had. They never went back to it and never had anything else for him. He did get a picture with The Rock last week, so uh, at least he he got that. Don't forget, with Triple H, like we may love the way he's booking the main roster, at least compared to Vince McMahon, and, and there's all these improvements in this area, this area, and this area. But one thing that Triple H does not do as well as Vince, and one thing he does not concentrate on as much as Vince, is the comedy aspects of wrestling. So when you have someone like Boogs, who is a comedy act, it makes sense that it doesn't fit into Triple H's vision of creative the same way it did Vince. So this is a guy who, if Vince was still in firm control and did the shows on a week-to-week basis, maybe he would have gone back with Nakamura as soon as he returned. One thing I do think you're forgetting about Shinsuke Nakamura, though, is they were building him up and doing an extended heel turn with Nakamura. They were featuring him more frequently. There was a long period of time where Shinsuke was just not on TV at all. They were putting him in numerous different types of matches. That way people could see him and and he would win some, he would lose some, whatever. But that was all predicating the heel turn that eventually happened. So that is why they were never put together, even when they were not doing work uh, for a period of time, or at least Nakamura wasn't doing anything important for a period of time. But I mentioned that Boogs had that short-term alliance with Elias. Well, guess what? Elias has also been released from WWE. He was there for basically a decade, including the NXT run when he was the drifter. I was told that he has not been on a talent contract for a while, but somehow he was still tied to WWE. I'm not exactly sure how. Point being, this was not much of a surprise. They let that first contract elapse. Maybe this was a music contract that he was on or or something like that. But Elias, and pun kind of intended here, he's always been kind of a one-note guy. Like, he obviously has a presence on the mic. He can get massive heat with the guitar. But it was pretty much the same thing every week and with every feud. We're never going to get anything better than the moment he had with Kevin Owens 
in Seattle making the comment about the supersonics, the most nuclear heat that we have heard pre-Dominic Mysterio in WWE in quite some time. Now, that's not to say that someone else can't use him better than WWE did, but he's very much an act similar to Rick Boogs that succeeded under Vince McMahon, but did not have what Triple H wanted. I mean, the guy was just, he was never even mediocre in the ring. I hate to say that because he was exceptional on the mic. I think he can succeed either making sporadic appearances independent. He can go with a name like Elijah, where you can pretty much play into the same gimmick and do that and show up anywhere you want. He would probably be massively over in impact. In AEW, maybe there's something there. They just want to get pops from the crowd. I don't know that he's going to be a needle mover for them in any way. Um, So I'm not sure what the future holds for him. It's just, it's tough to see that WWE would have had a place for Elias when someone like LA Knight exists and is such a focus Mm -hmm. of the show and is better than him in almost every single way. I put them together, even though, yeah, LA Knight doesn't do music, obviously, but they filled the same kind of role. Just LA Knight does it from an A level and Elias does it from a B level. I'm trying to remember years and years ago, I went to an NXT house show up in Detroit and um, I remember Sami Zayn was on that show. I think Finn Balor was on that show. Like a lot of big, big names. The guy who got the most heat, positive or negative, from the crowd, the Drifter, <laughs> the Drifter Elias, because he, he just had a he just had a really good figured out how to get heat, and he was hating NXT because the thought was, hey, this guy can't wrestle; he's not doing anything. But he did such a good job with all that. Elias was a great character. The the Ezekiel stuff went on too long, but it was incredibly funny when mm-hmm. it happened. Uh, I, I was mostly just kind of surprised when he came back they, he, or, or when they stopped Ezekiel. They just they never really went back to the old Elias, the walk with Elias stuff. Mm-hmm. Incredibly over. But like you said, just not a Triple H thing, apparently. And again, not everything. Tri- not everything Vince does is bad. And not everything Triple H does is good. I right. thought the walk with Elias thing was a gimmick you could do forever. And. They just kind of never went back to it. And I was I was surprised. But again, another guy had been used for quite a while. So not surprised at the news. And you have to remember when we're like criticizing, hey, you know, they could have done something great with Elias. It's like, OK, well, you do that. Then you don't have Bronson Reed and what he's doing with the tsunami and the way he's getting over as a big time heel. Like here's the thing. I would take Elias over Bronson Reed. I know you would. I, I know you would. I wouldn't. I would take Bronson Reed over Elias. But my point is, is it can't be both. There's only so much TV time, mm-hmm. right? So you yeah. you have to make decisions on what talent you want to go with and which ones you don't. And I will tell you, based on the releases that, again, we know as we're taping this podcast, and again, let's hope there's no more and it stops at 17, but the vast majority of these people here that got released were not being used on television by Triple H. Yeah. Previously, people who were getting released were actually being used. For NXT, they would release people that Triple H was utilizing under his nose without even letting him know. So it's clear that he either had a hand in these or he was at least consulted before these releases came because it's very obvious the type of people that are gone are ones that were not, again, heavily focused on TV across SmackDown and Raw on a week-to-week right. basis. And that's yep. this is another example of that. Um, Mace and Mansoor also... Massey and Mansoir uh, were both released. This was an absolute travesty. You want like, there's one thing you can talk about Elias and some of these other guys that Triple H didn't use, but that Triple H went away 
from Maximum Male Models, which was just starting to get over and was one of those Vince McMahon gimmicks that sounds strange on paper, but it actually worked in reality because both of these guys fully bought into it. Those YouTube specials were hilarious and this was something that was working and they take Maxine Dupree away. Okay, they can still survive without her. They just completely dropped them. Mansoor has legitimate talent, but he always felt like he was around just because of the Saudi Arabia deal. Mace just never really fit into much of anything. He was on commentary for a period of time on Raw. That didn't work. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm surprised WWE didn't keep them around solely for the Twitch deal and the video game stuff that they're doing. I would not be surprised to see one or both of them pop up again in the future. But man, you and I both were really buying into Maximum Male Models and we were so excited the deal they were doing with Otis and all of that. And then once Triple H took over, he just sidelined them completely. Again, he does not have the fun that we do when it comes to stuff like that. So sometimes we Vince does do things that we like. Sometimes he doesn't. This is one of them that he put together that seemed really damn interesting. Triple H came. He first took Max Dupree away and turned him back into LA Knight. Huge thumbs up positive. But then he took Maxine Dupree away. And once that happened, yeah. it was over. Yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, Vince started Maximum Man Models with LA Knight, and we didn't like that part, uh, but it was it was working. Like, when Triple H took over, they were still doing the model part. They were starting that story of Otis maybe leaving Gable for the models. It was an interesting thing, and then they just kind of didn't pull any triggers and, and went away. Um, I'd say these guys might have a career in modeling uh, <laughs> after this uh, as well, but um, I think, is that everybody from, uh, uh, what was that group called? Re- not redemption. What no, were they called? Uh, retribution. Uh, that it was. It is not. It is not everybody. Dijak is on NXT. Oh, Dijak still. is still there. Yeah, yeah, but with Ali and, and Mace gone. Uh, no. Um, and um, uh, what's her name? Mia Yim is too. still back. Uh, yeah, she came back. Yeah, Mia Yim is back. So I guess two of the four now. But uh, yeah, yeah. Again. Well, no. Th- uh, Shane uh, Thorn also got released. So three of the five are gone, and okay. two are left. I guess technically as of right now. Uh, moving on, uh, Dana Brooke was released. Dana was there for 11 years and it says a lot that her best run was as the manager of Titus worldwide, which was like six years ago, maybe longer. Uh, they gave her a second chance in NXT recently. She's been down there. She did candidly show improvement in the ring credit to her, but it it was hardly to the level of in ring ability that you want to see that so many other of the developmental talents there already have. And she didn't develop on the mic at all that is where you would want to see her improve, kind of like Mandy Rose did if there was going to be a future for her. She does, Chris, leave as a 15-time 24-7 champion, which might be second only to R-Truth. But look, Dana, like I said, around for a while. It's one of those where it's unfortunate. Not that surprised. No, I I don't watch much NXT. The bits and pieces I'd seen looked like she was doing some interesting stuff, at least helping some other wrestlers. But... uh, yeah, I, 11 years, I would not have guessed that. Good for her to have that, to at least have that kind of run. For sure. And, and you know, when someone's there 9, 8, 10, 7, 11 years, um, I know I did that in a weird order, but that's a significant time at an individual company. It is of employment. Dude, that's that's longer That's longer than like Stone Cold Steve Austin's career in WWE. <laughs> it, yeah. It was what, like mid-90s and he was gone by 03. It's longer like, than The Rock's run, his initial run when he was there. I mean, so like you, you have to like, put that in some context. It sucks. It it sucks that these people lost their jobs. Like there's no question about it. But if you're somewhere a decade and you're getting paid well, and 
I mean, that's a legitimate run. That's not three years and you're out. You know, they're cutting people that really um, don't have much like experience or anything. These people are all now very experienced and they at least have opportunities elsewhere. Uh, continuing with the releases, Riddick Moss. Other than Ziggler and Ali, this one, Chris, was actually the most surprising to me. 10 years in WWE and NXT, though he's dealt with about three years, maybe even a little bit more worth of injuries. The guy, though, is athletic as hell. He has a great look, even though he was completely handicapped with that ridiculous madcap Moss name once he broke from Baron Corbin. Don't forget, he got ridiculously over. It seemed like he got his name back. He was named Riddick Moss, put with his real-life girlfriend, Emma, maybe their fiancés now. Um, but they just could never get on TV. Triple H wouldn't book them. And I will say, their pairing did not do much for me, other than the fact that he got Riddick Moss back. But like I said, the guy's a super athlete. He has a great look. I cannot believe they were unable to repackage him into something because he actually had talent in the ring and on the mic. That said, maybe WWE felt, hey, we've tried enough times. You've been here for a decade. It's only going to go to a certain level. Uh, in terms of where he goes, he could go to Impact and they could develop him. I truly believe this into a main eventer, especially if he goes with Emma. We'll talk about her momentarily. Um, AEW, though, if they wanted him to be, he's not really a developmental prospect, but if they wanted him to be on Ring of Honor, that could make a lot of sense to me as well. Was he Riddick by the end or were they still doing Madcap? He was Riddick technically at the very, very end. Yeah. Yeah. Riddick Moss, one of the like coolest wrestling names ever. If you think about it, like that is a really cool name. <laughs> it just, it never, no doubt. the only time he ended up getting over was when they, t- was when they took the name away. So, um, yeah, athletic dude shined here and there, but very, very full company and just didn't really stand out much, uh, much after that. And I mentioned Emma, um, she was also released not to be disparaging at all, but just being honest, I never understood why fans liked her during her first run. I didn't understand why people liked her in Ring of Honor and Impact when she was Tennille Dashwood. I didn't really understand why WWE brought her back. She just did not really measure up in ring to most of the other WWE women. And I've never personally found her to have a particularly interesting character either. Like she had gloves. What else was there? Out of all the names on this list, she's one of only, I think it's two. Um, Oh, maybe it's three. Let me double check really quick. I think two though that was rehired by WWE under Triple H and has now been released on the back end of that. So I think that's decently interesting. Now, she and a few of those rehired talents, like Hit Row, were told at the time they were being brought in for depth purposes specifically. But like I said, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy when you have people like Moss and Emma. If they're not on TV, they're not gonna get over. And if they're on TV and don't get over, WWE is not going to keep them on TV. There's only so many hours of TV. And the same goes for AEW. I say this all the time. That roster is enormous. And there's tons of talented people. I would say more talented people even not being used. Does that mean they never should have been hired? Or is it simply that all these talent join these companies and they face the same challenges? I lean towards the latter. The difference is AEW lets contracts expire. So those talents get paid and they have independent freedom while they're employed there. Whereas WWE fires people and gives them 90 day of pay and then they have no job. So I really do believe Emma, Riddick Moss, you put them on impact. That is actually a difference maker for that brand. We'll see if that's what happens. Well, I'll tell you the reason people loved Emma back in the day during her first run. I mean, 
she and Paige down in NXT basically started the women's revolution. You know, like uh, I know Nikki Bella and Alexa Bliss and the four horse four horse women kind of <laughs> ended, yeah. ended up taking that. But it started. Yeah, with, that's with, fair. With Paige and Emma and, and Natalia a little bit in there as well. So like th- that's why people have a, an affinity for the nostalgia of that. But yes, as women's wrestling got bigger and, and more prolific, she got lapped long time ago. Right. And and, and, and that's fine. It's just it, it happens. Like you said, she was here for depth. They did a little bit with her and Riddick as a couple, as a team to just kind of take some losses and eventually you move on. But I just wanted, I just kind of wanted to no, it's give fine. him a credit for that back in the day. Like that, that is why she deserves some credit with that, with Paige uh, Soraya as um, kind of kickstarting that under Triple H way back in the day. I'm glad you brought it up because I certainly, you know, when I, when I give some of these opinions on the talent, it's, it's not saying they're bad people or that they're not talented. It's just my take on, you know, the circumstances of their time in WWE. I would not be surprised if Emma was brought back specifically for Riddick Moss. And then when that didn't work with Riddick, they're just like, well, we don't need to keep either of them. That's at least my take on it. Uh, Top Dollar was released. Another one of those depth hires along with the rest of Hit Row, which if Top Dollar is not going to be there, why B-Fab is still around in particular? She doesn't even wrestle. I don't understand. Ashanti Adonis. He's not on this list. Not sure about him either. I was pleased to see that Top Dollar trimmed down significantly. He came in pretty heavy initially when he was a free agent, but he trimmed down. He worked his ass off to get thinner. Um, I would just say he's never really been that interesting from a wrestling perspective. And when you have Michael Cole constantly clowning you and you make those mistakes so frequently that give Cole the opportunity to clown you, it's just not going to work. I'm also surprised, not that I want any of them to lose their jobs, but that it's only Top Dollar and not the rest of them because right. of anybody. You would think Top Dollar is the one guy you want around for depth because he's a big guy. Exactly. So you can like yeah. beat him and look good. Like that's, he's, he, he always, among Hit Row, the original Hit Row, even with Swerve, he always stuck out to me the most because of that. Um, so I, I am surprised at this one in the context of just him um, for, for, for that exact reason. So uh, I, I, always, I thought I thought him and Hit Row did their job well. Like they come in, you clown on the crowd, Ellen Knight's music hits and you lose, you know, like just that classic, get some cheap heat and get beat roll. Mm-hmm. I thought they did a good job with that, but apparently uh, moving on from just him. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So uh, also released was Shanky, who has not had a match on television since July. He had two teaming with Jinder Mahal. Obviously, he moved Jinder over with Indu Shur. Never truly understood him being around for so long. He, he never really improved or did much of anything. Um, so it's one of those talents where it's just like they're on contract. And again, they're not really doing that much. So I should also note, um, let me clarify something. I said he hasn't done anything Jul- since July being in a match. July 2022. So over a year, he hadn't been on TV. So there you go. He was, I think he was highlighted at that India show recently, wasn't he? Maybe, but he, I don't, I don't have him listed as having a match. Oh yes. I'm sorry. He did have a match at superstar spectacle. He fought Gunther in an intercontinental title match and lost in five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I hadn't done much. The India shows behind you makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Aaliyah, you never want to say, oh, I'm surprised they weren't released years ago. But I mean, that's how I felt about Aaliyah. She's been there nearly a decade. 
she was never much of anything in NXT. It really? Se- it seemed like in NXT, they're just like, hey, you know what? You've been here long enough. You might as well give the main roster a shot. They gave her a shot on the main roster. She won the women's tag team titles, which did not make any sense. That ended quickly. I cannot imagine she ever wrestles again. How can you not mention her crowning achievement? Aaliyah she 317? Has the, she yeah. has the fastest pin in WWE history. She does. I have to give Aaliyah. I have to leave meat on the table for you, man. I gotta give you something. Aaliyah has that record and she'll always have it. So or I guess not always, but it'd be pretty hard to beat, honestly. So yeah. Um we will see. I think she got hurt and kind of was gone for a while and never came back. So, yeah, ultimately, I couldn't believe it was that long. Wow, that's investing a lot of time into somebody. Because I remember, like, when I when I talked to Triple H like two years ago at the at the WB tryout, he was like, "We're going to give people less time to figure this out now mm-hmm. because we have such a bigger pipeline." as we're bringing in these college athletes, these NIL kids every year now. Like, if you don't figure this out in like a year or two, like we're moving on. And so to, I didn't even realize Aaliyah had gotten that much time. Um, but it's an example of something we're not going to probably see that much of anymore. For sure. Uh, and we're going to get to that in a moment with those some of those quick departures. Uh, Daba Kato was released. I was actually decently impressed with Kato, who was also Commander Aziz and Baba Tunde. You may know him by those names. Um, he returned to NXT recently. And I, I was like, oh, this guy has some power. Like he's, he's putting some decent moves together in the ring. But WWE is not really at a loss for big men and he wasn't really needed for any major reason. So I get that. Yeah. You know, the raw underground bit back in the pandemic days when he showed up and he went uh, face to face with, I forgot who it was. Was it Braun? I don't remember, but it, it was, um, no, it was, um, uh, Omas, I think, right. I think they did something, but, uh, that was cool. I thought he looked cool. The commander Aziz thing was super weird, but uh, he had he was tall. He looked cool, but didn't do much else. Uh, we also had Ulisa Leon get released. Now, she was part of a tag team with Valentina Ferroys that I was massively enjoying in NXT. They were working really well together as luchadoras. I thought they could have been called up and been a low level tag team for the women's division. But again, you still have the women's tag team division on the main roster that has three teams right now in total. So they're not doing regular women's tag team matches. So if you're not going to do regular matches, then you don't really need women's tag teams. Valentina Ferroyce has not been released again, at least at the time we're taping this. So Leon being gone, it's just a surprise. You know, again, I I thought she was talented. So that's really all I have on her. Do you, I don't even know if you're aware of who she is. I I am not familiar with her. Okay. She did have one match on SmackDown, um, but yeah, that's fine. Uh, Quincy Elliott was released short period of time in NXT, even shorter period of time on TV. It's kind of problematic backstage, created numerous issues. So not a huge surprise necessarily that that he got released. Uh, So I started here by saying there were 17 names. I actually have 18. There was another uh, WWE PC talent that was cut while we were taping the episode. The first one uh, is Bryson Montana, whose real name is Jacoby Brooks. He was signed to WWE in August 2021 following tryouts at the SummerSlam that they had in Las Vegas. Uh, He was part of the U.S. Navy. I think he did NXT level up a few times, but was never really uh, on the main roster or or on the main NXT television show. I think he may have had one match, but I don't even remember. I candidly don't even think I have heard his name or seen him wrestle before. 
Uh, Chris, are you aware of him? Was he a former athlete that you're aware of? Anything like that? I am not familiar with him or his background and obviously didn't see him since he didn't uh, play very much. So not yet. But that goes back to the point again where WWE, these new people who are trying wrestling for the first time, uh, will not have as much time to kind of figure it out. Yeah. And another name like that, Daniel MacArthur, who went to uh, North Carolina. Oh, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Did, did he play? A, was he a football player or something? He was a shot putter, like a four time All-American. I interviewed him for oh, okay. my story last year at the tryout. He did the tryout in Dallas. Um, he him and Triple H kind of connected. He I remember at the tryout, he 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 had a big throw of the medicine ball on the test and he he threw it the farthest and he, you get two tries. And he was just short of, I forgot what the mark was, but like this, this round number and Triple H was like, I'm calling an audible here. I want to see you do it again. Like do it again. He almost got there, but they like chilled afterward and stuff like that. I, I talked to him a couple of times. Uh, yeah. Former All-American shot put guy in North Carolina. Um, sad to see it uh, apparently didn't work out. Yeah. So he was there since June, 2022. So this is what we're talking about. You, a lot of what's been happening with the performance center talent is WWE, you know, they start them out, they give them time to adjust and whatever. And then they give them like a six month window and they say, hey, you know, in this six month window, we want to see you succeed and improve and all that. And if they don't, that's generally when they cut ties. So I would not be surprised if after the end of this podcast, there's more performance center talent that gets added to this list. But with Montana and with MacArthur, that is now 18 releases uh, from WWE, Chris. Uh, now, we also know that Grizzled Young veterans are on their way out. Uh, they're finishing up their contract. Roderick Strong obviously recently had his contract expire, immediately appeared on AEW. We also know Edge's deal is about to run out, though he has an offer for a new contract from WWE, if you believe him. Of course, he's been a noted liar for good, good, you know, good natured liar uh, in the past, um, but nevertheless, a liar, a kayfabe liar. Um, there appears to be some momentum about AEW signing him. Whether that actually happens, who knows? There was momentum in the news about Randy Orton going to AEW at one point. Uh, but Randy Orton obviously re-signed with what? WWE. There was, yeah, when his last I contract was up with FTR. Absolutely, yeah, that was a thing. Um, he took a picture outside of some like locker room that said Elite, or I forgot what it was, but it happened during his last contract, uh, the last time it was up for renewal. Um, but that never happened. My point is, and maybe it doesn't happen with Edge, maybe it does, we'll see. And of course, we've spoken extensively about Nia Jax being signed by WWE and rumors about Jade Cargill being on her way to WWE. One thing you need to know, talent being signed, you cannot compare to talent being released. Dolph Ziggler was not released, so WWE could sign Jade Cargill. There is a budget for new talent, and there is the current budget of talent, and they made cuts, WWE did in this case, to trim the salary of their current list of talent. They're still gonna bring new people in to the main roster, they're still gonna bring new people in to the performance center. Chris, in terms of main roster names not released that were perhaps a bit surprising to me given the people who were released, and I, I don't say these names to suggest A, that they should be fired, or B, that I want them fired, or that I see don't want them on TV or anything. I'm just looking at talent who fit similar categories to the names that we've already spoken about today. And I'm also not trying to give any bad juju or anything for them. So knock on wood, wherever you are, we hope all these people retain their jobs. But some of the names that I was interested to see not on this list, Apollo Crews has completely disappeared, but obviously should be used all the time, at least as someone to enhance other talent. Dexter Loomis, 
I've not heard about him as part of the Johnny Gargano plans, but maybe he is part of those plans. Odyssey Jones has been absolutely nowhere to be found. Indusher and Jinder Mahal are hardly ever on TV. Zia Lee, Karrion Cross, and Scarlett, they've disappeared from television. And then there's also Zion Quinn that got the call up as part of the WWE draft, but never appeared on TV once after the draft. And I think Odyssey Jones actually belongs in that camp as well. So those are just a list of names. I don't want to go too deep where it's like, okay, those are some other low carters that I thought would possibly be on this list, but weren't and good for them. I hope all of them retain their jobs. Um, But that's kind of the way we can wrap this up um, from the WWE releases standpoint. Yeah, just tough news, tough to tough to see. Um, most of these people ultimately not surprising, but uh, yeah, Ziggler second most wins ever. You know, eleven year career for Dana Brooke. Like these, there are people in here who did a lot and accomplished a lot, and um, it's, it's always difficult when people don't uh, when people lose their jobs. And it was ultimately yeah. not surprising when you have a corporate merger like this, and um, it also comes as there is other big corporate merger news for this company. Look at you setting me up for the transition. I mean, that's, that's what we do here on this, on this podcast. We set each other up and we, we succeed in that regard. So, you know, not to overshadow the releases, let's just be candid. All this happened the same day and WWE probably did it that way on purpose so that the big news hit the national media and overshadowed the smaller news that of course is Mm -hmm. more wrestling media based, which unfortunately is the releases. But there were two big news items to move on from this, uh, Chris. That happened uh, Thursday. The first is WWE officially announced that Elimination Chamber will be held in Perth, Australia, February 24th, Chris, to be specific. Now, this is very exciting, of course, for WWE and a lot of the Australian talent in WWE, pretty much everyone except Emma, unfortunately, sorry, who just lost her job. Um, but they will be doing uh, yeah, Elimination did you, Chamber. Way, did you see that? Did you see that? She, she, did you see that? She tweeted, it's a dream basically to be <laughs> yeah. have a WWE event going to Australia. And then like 40 minutes later, she like quote tweeted herself and said, well, I'm no longer with WWE. Oof, man, that sucks. Yeah, that really. I mean, talk about a, a short period of like aged like milk type of tweet. That unfortunately was one of them. Um, but it's going to be Saturday, February 24th. No time set as of right now. I don't know what they're going to do from a time perspective. I think Australia is 12 hours ahead of us. Perth is. So, you know, 8 p.m. Eastern would be 8 a.m. in Perth. Um, So I I don't know if it's going to be a morning show there, if it's going to be a morning show here. I I don't know what the appropriate time is, but yeah, they will be doing it um, in Perth, Australia. And we've discussed this already extensively on the WWE podcast on Tuesday, so you can go back and listen to that. But I do love the idea of this Elimination Chamber show. You have... Royal Rumble and WrestleMania that are huge. And if you remember, WWE used to shove two shows between them. One would usually be a Blood Money in the Sand show, and the other would be Elimination Chamber. Um, They've done Elimination Chamber now in Canada. And am I correct that they did it in Saudi Arabia the year before that? I, th- I don't know if it was the year before, but I remember because there was a lot of Elimination Chamber Saudi Arabia bone sod. Yeah. Uh, inappropriate. They did. Comparisons made at the time. Yeah. It was 2022. So 2022 was in Saudi. Uh, 2023 was in Montreal. And now 2024, they're going to Perth. So I love this concept of them doing three huge shows to start the year. Royal Rumble in a United States baseball stadium, Elimination Chamber, somewhere that is not the continental United States. 
And then WrestleMania, obviously, for the most part, in a major US city. It's a great way to kind of kick off the year. Because of this, I wouldn't be surprised if the Blood Money in the Sand show is after WrestleMania. Maybe they do Backlash instead of going to Puerto Rico like they did. Maybe they do Again, it in that situation. Not a gr- not a great name show to put in Saudi Arabia. Not a, neither is neither is payback. If they were to do it there, there's a number of uh, no, or, no, nor no mercy, nor probably most WWE shows would not work uh, in that spot. But obviously, big news that they're doing it. I know Australian fans and many international fans are excited. So that is one piece of solidly important news for us to discuss. Chris, did you have anything else that you didn't say on Tuesday that you wanted to say about this? If not, we can move on to what is candidly bigger news than this. Only that I looked up while you were talking the time difference. It is exactly 12 hours difference from Eastern time zone. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, interesting. Maybe but everything else we said, we said on the Tuesday show. Maybe they do a start at 10 p.m. over there and do it 10 a.m. here. What did they do for Super Showdown? Uh, I don't remember, but that one. Um, I don't know. I got it right here. I'm looking at it right here. Uh, 5 a.m. Eastern. It streamed on then the WWE Network. So that's interesting. Now, the difference there is that Melbourne is 14 hours ahead of the United States, whereas Perth is uh, 12 hours. So perhaps that would indicate like a 7 a.m. start for this one, Elimination Chamber, instead of 5 a.m., which is what they did um, for Super Showdown back however many years ago when they did that. So 7 a.m. makes sense, but hey, I would still do it one hour later, 8 a.m. No matter what, Chris, you and I are going to have to, some Saturday uh, weekend, Saturday the 24th of February, you and I will be waking up early uh, to cover WWE Elimination Chamber right here. Now that said, um, that was not the biggest news from WWE today. The releases really even weren't the biggest news of the day. The biggest news is that WWE has agreed to a five-year media rights contract with NBC Universal to air a show on USA Network. And that show is not Monday Night Raw. Instead, it is SmackDown. And not only has USA Network acquired the rights to SmackDown, it will remain on Friday nights starting October 2024. I should say continuing October 2024. In addition to that, WWE will produce four annual primetime specials for NBC. Now, anyone who is part of our Buy Me A Coffee page, again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, you have seen for weeks upon weeks now, I have been reporting that WWE and NBC Universal had agreed to terms on a television deal that would be announced once the TKO merger was official. I also said WWE was speaking with NBC about primetime network specials at a minimum, if not a show, and that SmackDown would not be returning to Fox. However, contrary to my reporting, the agreed upon deal was clearly for SmackDown and not Raw, which is what I had reported. Now, I doubled back with some sources on Thursday to see what happened. It appears this was just an issue of information that was provided to me being vague. They didn't mention the specific show. I assumed because Raw has been there forever that they were talking about Raw. And obviously because of that, I got it wrong. So I regret that error for any of our subscribers over there. I'll obviously be more careful when it comes to media rights in the future. That said, we did have pretty much all the information here, except for the key item, the shocking item, with it being SmackDown, not Raw, and it being on Friday nights still. So Chris, before we get into some of the details on this, how surprised are you that this is what has happened 
with the first of the two big media rights contracts that WWE will be signing since the TKO merger. I'm surprised NBC USA went and got SmackDown. I'm not surprised Fox didn't. I had talked with someone at Fox a couple months ago uh, just about football stuff, but I was like, hey, how's that WWE stuff going? And they're like, oof, they're asking for a lot, man. I don't know. So yeah. uh, not surprised ultimately in, in the end, but um, I'm kind of curious, like just the, the thought process behind it. Is the idea generally like, hey, we're not going up against Monday Night Football. That's why we'd rather have SmackDown. You can't say SmackDown has the higher ratings. We'll take SmackDown. SmackDown has the higher ratings in part because it's on Fox. Correct. It's on a broadcast network. So that part was interesting to switch. Maybe they just completely want to get away from Monday Night Football. We talked about it on Tuesday. They're putting Monday Night Football on ABC more often as well. So like, I don't know. Maybe that was a part of it. Um, They're also doing two, two Monday Night games, Monday Night Football games, in multiple weeks this year, which is, I mean, t- I think it's terrible as a fan, but it's even worse if you're WWE. Yeah, the flip side is, though, because Fox no longer has SmackDown, it is going to air more college football. It will, yes. Uh, because It has Big Ten and Big 12 games. Those conferences have gotten bigger. You got to put them somewhere. There's going to be, you're, you're just, you're going to be going up against more college football now on Friday. Uh, as well. And you're not a broadcast network, except for the couple of times they put a show on NBC. Yeah. I mean, WWE on a Friday could definitely go up against like Penn State, Iowa or something like that. Like th- that, that is absolutely plausible where that would go head to head. And WWE now is not just going head to head with that, but they're on cable going head to head with yep. it in f- way fewer homes. Whereas now Fox, of course, is broadcast and it's putting football on significant Big Ten football. So that's very interesting. Let's start here by talking about the return to USA Network. Uh, Even though SmackDown has been on the air since 1999, it's only aired on USA for four years previously, 2016 to 19, that immediately preceded this Fox deal. And you'll remember SmackDown was on Tuesday night. So there was that really cool Raw on Monday, SmackDown on Tuesday, you're done with WWE for the week. I loved it. You can turn your brain on to football and watch football, you know, from Thursday all the way through Sunday. And then again, Monday night, it was raw in competition with Monday Night Football, but it was only one game and it was really easy. Then preceding that, it was on Sci-Fi, which was also owned by NBC Universal. So, you know, let's not get it twisted. NBC Universal has aired SmackDown for nine years of its existence. That's not nothing. So it coming back isn't that strange. What's interesting, really, Chris, is that for 12 years or 13 years of its 22-year existence, SmackDown has aired on network television. So everything from UPN to My Network TV to obviously Fox Now. And again, though, during its USA Network run, it aired on Tuesday nights. So it's never aired, I don't think, on Friday night on cable TV, unless it did for sci-fi, but I don't believe it did at that time. I don't remember. I wasn't in it around that time, but um, yeah, that is a lot for SmackDown. I remember at the UPN days when it started, it kind of died almost i felt like it was not on its last legs for a while but i love the smackdown live era the smackdown live era with shane mcmahon that tuesday show that was fun man that was that was honestly one of the most fun periods of smackdown i think i can remember uh let's also move to the the dollars and cents of the entire thing so the wall street journal is reporting that wwe is earning 1.4 billion from nbc universal for smackdown now they're reporting that as a 40 percent increase on the deal it had with Fox. And by pure numbers, it, do, it is a 40% increase. 
However, because of these NBC primetime specials, we'll discuss those in a moment, uh, they're going to be producing 280 shows as part of this deal. That compares to 260 in the current Fox deal. That means WWE is going to earn $5 million per episode of TV it produces in this new deal compared to $3.85 million in the prior deal. So mm-hmm. why WWE, it did secure a significant increase. There's no poo-pooing that. It's actually a 30% gain in rights fees. And none of that includes inflation. So let's kind of say it's 25%. That's still higher. And they're getting more money from NBC Universal to air on cable than they got from Fox to air on broadcast. That's a win. They're also getting the four primetime NBC spots. Sure. But I think in terms of what WWE was truly valuing these rights at, I don't know that they actually got as much as they hoped. They didn't. I mean, Nick Khan said earlier this year, he thought they could get a 150% increase and they didn't. And the result is the stock dropped 15% today. So like that's kind of the whole game here. Like uh, to get a rights increase and to get a sizable increase like that is a big deal for WWE. Like a couple of deals ago, remember, I don't. I think they either didn't get an increase or it was a decrease, and the and the stock plummeted. And two deals WWE ago. realized, yeah. oh, yeah, and WWE realized like, oh, we need to kind of pitch our deal as like live sports. You know, like like it's the thing that people don't DVR. People watch it live. It's about the only thing that has value on television left. That's why the Big Ten and the SEC and these conferences are getting bigger deals and the lesser leagues are not. WWE is in that tier. That's, I think, part of the reason kind of Nick Khan came aboard was to kind of fix that whole thing. But you remember, as part of this merger with UFC, a big selling point was our media rights deals are coming up and they're going to see a massive increase. So like, this is why this is good business news. And they did get a big increase. They just didn't get nearly the increase they promised. And that's why the stock price went down despite getting a bigger deal. And so that that is interesting. And along those lines, I'm sure you say like, obviously they haven't announced Raw. Uh, Alex Sherman with CNBC said, I think he heard was hearing next year for Raw, probably getting a deal done. But um, this probably doesn't, because of those numbers financially, probably doesn't give you confidence that the raw deal is going to be some massive deal either. Well, what's going to be interesting to find out is if the deals flip. So there's a lot of different things that could happen with raw. And let's actually pause and talk about that in a moment. But in terms of the money conversation, if SmackDown ends up being, let's just say, the only show on cable TV, then you actually need to compare this deal not to the Fox deal, but to the prior USA Network Monday Night Raw deal that was signed in 2019. And if that compares more favorably, it's very possible whatever deal they reach for Raw may bring in even more than $1.4 billion. And if that's the case, then combined, it may be even better for WWE than it looks right now. Because right now we're comparing apples to apples. Fox SmackDown to USA Network SmackDown. We don't know what the raw portion is. So that still remains to be seen. Um, part of this deal with NBC Universal, I mentioned, four primetime specials on NBC. This is those 20 extra shows. How WWE is gonna balance those programs with regular TV and premium live events, that remains to be seen. But they have created periods in their schedule where these could fit, such as like 
the November, December kind of period where they don't have a premium live event in December anymore. They don't have one in January before Royal Rumble. That's pretty much almost a two month period where you could definitely do one of these TV specials. Uh, and they can find other spots as well. But I think WWE kind of cutting down on those premium live events and doing individual tentpole shows internationally in places like Puerto Rico, uh, in major US cities, this seems to be part of that plan, I would say. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's, it's honestly kind of the AEW model uh, where you do some, AEW just does a the old AEW TV model. Specials. They, just, <laughs> they just did one, which which you'll talk about later on this episode. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I like that idea. I'm curious, I'm, I'm interested in it. Like I'm curious to see how, how they go about it. You know, do they make sure. it a big thing? Do they make it like, oh, it's a superstar, you know, special super show, raw super show where everybody's on, you know, night something of champions, like something like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. So the other big surprise, I guess, with the SmackDown deal, and we kind of touched on this a little bit, is that it's staying on Friday. The sole reason SmackDown moved to Friday was because of Fox. The network mm -hmm. wanted tentpole content that night. And as you mentioned, more likely than not, they're going to be replacing WWE with college football. Remaining on Friday, but going to cable for me is a head scratcher. Now, you would think, well, of course they're staying on Friday. They don't want to compete with football by moving to Thursday night. Okay, but Thursday night football is on Amazon Prime. And yes, 150 million people have subscriptions to Amazon Prime Video. No question about that. But from what we have been led to understand as sports media, Thursday Night Football ratings have dropped significantly compared to what they were when they were on a variation of different channels um, on linear cable. So I'm a little surprised that WWE wouldn't say, okay, Thursday Night Football is on streaming. We're going to be, WWE, I should say, and NBC Universal, And they say, hey, we're going to be the premier show on cable and or network television. It's just surprising to me that they didn't do it. Now, it's not surprising, obviously, they didn't move to Wednesday. I think WWE recognizes that AEW has created a stronghold on Wednesday. Then I thought, well, what if they just went back to what they used to do with USA Network, which you and I just praised earlier in the show. Raw on Monday night, SmackDown on Tuesday night. And that brings us to really the topic that I want to discuss. There has been a rumor circulating, Chris, for quite some time not specifically about Raw moving to Tuesday, but Raw moving off Monday nights. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, and you have seen this unfold through the last two weeks, Raw is getting absolutely crushed four months out of the year by the NFL. But you know what? It's actually beyond four months because the NFL has added extra Monday night games, including a playoff game, they're also putting shows on ABC this year because of the writer's strike. You mentioned that. And when it comes to the expanded college football playoff starting next year, there may well be more of those games on Monday night going head to head with Raw. So if you're a media rights partner and you're paying top dollar for Raw, why the hell would you want that kind of competition for basically five months out of the year? The problem, Chris, is that Monday Night Raw is a tentpole show for WWE. It is the WWE television show, and it has been since its inception. It's always aired on Monday night. It's also aired on USA Network for 84% of its existence, 26 of 31 years. 
So them possibly moving Raw, not just off Monday night, but also off USA Network, that is crazy. And if Raw does move to Tuesday, which by the way is a down night for television historically, then you have to put NXT somewhere. NXT is either going Wednesday against AEW, or it's going head-to-head with NFL, or it's going head-to-head Thursday with NFL. Maybe they put it on Thursday, and that's the simple solution. It goes onto a different streamer, and that's what they do. But if you're going to put NXT on a streamer, it needs to be one that's either heavily utilized, like Prime Video, or something WWE already has content on, like Peacock, which is where, by the way, it used to be before they moved it to USA Network. Mm -hmm. So... Give me your thoughts here on what I've laid out, both regarding Raw, moving days, changing channels, and the future of NXT. That Raw moving dates thing is another part that makes me wonder if that's why the Raw deal is apparently so far away still, mm-hmm. according to CNBC and others, that they that they got SmackDown. Raw is going to take a while to figure out because I'm I, I'm guessing that may be one of the reasons, and you have to try to figure that out. It would be monumental undoubtedly it's been monday night raw since the beginning smackdown has changed channels and times and whatnot raw has not other than a brief period on tnn back in the day so i get it um like i get the idea like look a third of the year more than a third of the year your ratings are impacted by the nfl so move it 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 makes sense and the only other thing i could think of with nxt is putting that on a streamer. Like we, we don't know where it'll go. There's been talks about maybe ESPN possibly picking up raw or some other. Well, Disney picking up raw. Yeah. Disney more so. Yeah. Well, Disney, but it would be on ESPN, especially if they're up unloading. Well, I guess you could put on FX. It would be FX would be the most likely home, not ESPN because it it would get bumped way too frequently on ESPN. And the ratings would crater even more if you put that show on FX than, than USA, which is, yes, it would, which is the number one, I think it's the number one non-sports cable channel, I think. Um, so it's uh, it, it's a lot. And to, to your point about Thursday Night Football, I've made the case forever that college football, ESPN, should schedule a big Thursday night game to go up against Thursday Night Football since it's on Amazon. And the sense I've always gotten from people in that business is the NFL won't like that. And nobody wants to upset the NFL. Mm-hmm. And so if you're, if you're Disney, if you're Disney or any of these other uh media broadcast partners looking at getting Monday Night Raw, it might behoove you and and help you with the NFL to move Monday Night Raw as well. The NFL is incredibly powerful when it comes to television right now. And and, and it all comes into play for that. So it feels like a real possibility. And and we're not going to have the answer for quite a while. But man, thinking about I mean you saw the ratings the last what two weeks ago was like the lowest raw ratings ever, I think. So um that's the power of the NFL, and I understand why people may want to move against it. It's just the NFL has gone all in on Monday night. Like, they have just, it used to be just tough competition for WWE, like the toughest you could get, and now it seems like it's impossible. What do you think, and because we're talking about media rights and college football, and I can talk about it from a golf perspective a little bit, one TV station that's not being discussed, and even in all of our reporting that I've done on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. I've mentioned Disney, I've mentioned Amazon, I've mentioned all these options that I thought were for SmackDown, but for Raw now instead. The one channel that's not really being mentioned that I find immensely interesting is the CW, which really does seem to be dipping its toe into sports in a significant manner. Now look, 
it's like second tier rights. I think it has right now, Chris, for the ACC. And does it have something else? Third tier. Third tier. Third tier for the ACC. And maybe something else as well. Obviously, they they aired Live Golf, but that was a situation where Live bought time uh, on the network. So it was different. But the CW, very much like UPN and my network TV back in the day for SmackDown, it is a broadcast network and they need to fill time. And if you can put Raw, even Monday night, the audience, the, the amount of people that could find Raw would be up huge from it being on USA Network. If they could come to a deal with the CW, either for Monday or Tuesday, that might be a situation where WWE gets a big media rights number, they get better exposure from Raw, and again, whether it's Monday against the NFL that gives them a better opportunity to compete with the NFL, or Tuesday on their own, it gives them a chance to still put up maybe not a Fox number, but a very respectable similar number to what they're currently doing on cable. What do you think about that as an option? Here's another funny thing. We, uh, I don't know if you mentioned it when talking about other SmackDown channels, uh, the CW used to air SmackDown. Like, like it, it had it for a while. CW from 2006 to 2008, My Network TV from 2008 to 2010, according to Wikipedia here. Okay. But that was also differently. Oh, CW then was owned by CBS and Warner Brothers. It right. is not Correct. anymore. And this is good timing. I talked to the president of the CW like two weeks ago about the ACC deal and what they're doing. And he's like, look, we want to be considered a big five right. network. Right. They've got, they've, they recently got the NASCAR Xfinity series, I think. They do inside the NFL show. And the CW was majority bought by Nexstar Correct. like a year ago. Recently, so th- yeah. they're under they're under new ownership basically within the last year or so. That's why they got rid of a lot of the scripted TV shows and stuff like that. They want to go big into sports. Mm-hmm. And um and, and, and as part of that, interestingly, Nexstar, the which owns most of the CW stations, they are interested in buying ABC from Disney. They are, yes. So that is true. So, so that is another thing I would think about as well. The CW could make a lot of sense for that exact reason. It's network television. Um, I don't know if it'd want to go up against Monday Night Football because, again, it has the inside the NFL show and all that. But that is a that is a station, a channel that that I would be uh, would definitely be interesting to keep an eye on. So yeah, Chris, you're right. Nextstar recently bought seventy five percent. Uh, of the CW, which it was previously owned by CBS and Warner, uh, which is the reason why it's called CW. They each still have a minority stake, about 12.5%. And obviously, Warner has the AEW deal, but I can't imagine being a minority shareholder in the CW, they could raise any stink about them getting wrestling. So anyway, there's a huge, complicated history. We're not going to get into it here. From UPN, My Network TV, the CW, a whole bunch of affiliate agreements, My network TV still exists. The CW still exists. They're completely different now. Um, UPN is the one that's gone. That's really the key to the entire thing. Uh, So I just think that the CW does offer a really interesting option for WWE. And the more that we talk about it, the more that it seems that might be the reality. I did see a reporting, I think it was the Hollywood Reporter and maybe Wall Street Journal as well. Both of them mentioned that because of this SmackDown deal, NBC Universal and USA Network were out for Raw, and it would not be an option for them. But uh, you know, you never know. 
just because that is the case now does not mean that'll be the case forever. And like you said, if this goes on a few more months, then it is very possible that they get back in and and figure out something to get all of the WWE content because, hey, they're already on Peacock. That's a separate deal that's going to expire, I think, in 2026. But if you have SmackDown and you have Peacock, you know, all of WWE's premium live events on Peacock, why would you not just go all in? I mean, I think the WWE deal with Hulu is actually ending. So that changes the uh, the second run deal that they have, which is Hulu has those rights right now. That's why WWE episodes between Hulu and Fox are delayed. They're not, they don't appear on Peacock the day after they air live on TV. That could be another reason they, they get all the streaming rights to WWE immediately right after it airs on TV. So yeah, I mean, that could be a boon for Peacock subscriptions as well. I just think there's a lot of reasons why they may want to get raw, even though some people say they're out right now. I, I will say I'm I am surprised in putting SmackDown on USA that you're not on network television now. I mean, SmackDown moving to network TV was huge. I mean, like big network. TV, it was like CW network. That was humongous for just the legitimate legitimization of WWE as a property as well. And after a very successful run with Fox, uh, they are apparently going elsewhere, at least at this point, finding ways for more money. Cause like the big 10 just did a big television deal all on network television. Like right. that is where the NFL is still network television and streaming, not cable. So all these things factor into all that. Let's not forget though. It's successful for WWE on Fox. It's not that successful for Fox when they got WWE they anticipated doing like 3 million per week with a 1 million or a 1.0 uh 18 through 49 demo and 2 months after it got smackdown it was doing 2.3 million with a 0.65 demo so it was not living up to their expectations when they signed that deal but what's crazy chris is WWE now is doing better ratings on Fox than it had been in 2022 and 2021. So even if Fox wasn't thrilled, the, the business is way stronger from a WWE perspective today than it was in at the time that Fox signed that deal. Like the product is doing better where you would try to project it continuing to rise. They bought it and it fell immediately. They projected it to hold steady or, or rise, but it didn't. So that's what's crazy. Like recent numbers, and I'm not counting the Rock episode, obviously, which is an outlier, uh, but they've done 2.65 million in a 0.78 demo on August 25th. They did on July 7th, 2.6 in a 0.76. Those are way better ratings than they were doing in 2022 at all, or 2021 at all. So SmackDown, the business for WWE is hotter. SmackDown is doing better numbers than it has in a really long time. And yet, it didn't get a TV deal that you would think would be that much bigger and better than they got with Fox. But naturally, money is not going to be the same going to cable as it would be on broadcast, number one. Uh, and number two, clearly, the WWE relationship with uh, USA Network played a factor here. What really stands to question long term is what, again, happens with Raw. And we're not, we don't have that answer right now. and We're not going to have it for a pretty good while. I agree. Now, I know that was a lot of heavy stuff for us to get to, both with the WWE releases and, of course, the television contract 
for SmackDown. I want to thank Vintage Chris Vanini for joining us to break all of that down, somewhat instant analysis style here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. But we still have actual wrestling, professional wrestling to talk about on today's show. So we're going to keep the ball rolling with NXT. And of course, we will hit AEW on the back end. Still a ton to discuss about both brands here. Like I said, NXT, we had Becky Lynch open the show with a poem that included all the main women's names on NXT as she talked about doing a world tour defending the title. Crowd was hot. Lynch said Tiffany Stratton may be an idiot, but she pushed her to her limit and can get a rematch whenever she wants it. So Stratton came out saying the rematch isn't optional. She deserves it. I mean, that's exactly what Becky said, right? Uh, Tiffany said she's the future of WWE and wanted her rematch immediately except she was just playing the crowd. She actually wants it at no mercy. Lynch said she would give it to her. Stratton is entitled, but not hungry enough to beat her. That was Becky's claim. Becky also said present day NXT feels like black and gold during her era. It devolved into a brawl with Kiana James attacking Lynch as well. Becky then invaded an interview segment backstage later, challenging them to a handicap match. That's pretty badass for her to step up and want to do a handicap match. This was easily, easily, Stratton's best live promo. Becky's rhyme, look, it was corny, but that's just her style and it's her sense of entertainment. Anyone who has watched her over an extended period of time knows for every great promo that you get, or let's say every four great promos you get, you're going to get a corny promo just like this. The rest of the segment was hot. Lynch's stuff came across both respectful of NXT while simultaneously wanting to level up the division. That's exactly her purpose being down there. I'd have preferred another young talent get Becky's back in this moment. Lynch doesn't need to prove that she's a badass. And there's plenty of women backstage who could be elevated as babyfaces by getting her back. Also, I'd have preferred the rematch be delayed. But as long as it's not a quick change back to Stratton, then this would get Stratton out of the way as a challenger and allow Becky to go do other things. We had Roxanne Perez against Lola Vice. Lola was surprisingly dominant here, working an injured arm. Roxy came back with a shotgun dropkick, only to get caught in an armbar off a Pop Rocks counter, but Perez pushed Vice backwards on her shoulders for a tight one, two, three. This was fun, undoubtedly a spot where NXT wanted to see what Lola could do on her own against one of the top women on the brand. She more than held her own, I would say. Vice is just over a year into training. It's safe to say her ceiling is decently high, especially coming out of this match. But that said, I wouldn't necessarily go and make the assumption that she's going to be a huge star, at least not just yet. She's not picking it up as quickly just by comparison as like Tiffany Stratton or Sol Ruka or previously Bianca Belair, just to name a few. Uh, Roxy ran up to Becky in the locker room after her singles match, saying she took a page out of Lynch's book. She's no longer letting anyone walk over her. Perez offered to be your tag team partner, but Becky said, clearly you have an injured shoulder. Look after that, but I respect you offering. Okay, so this obviously played into what I was talking about earlier, but Lynch didn't take the help. And there are other baby faces on the brand, so I was still hoping they weren't silly enough to just do a handicap match. Stratton and James, they started getting along backstage. They put each other over. Tiffany said that she had a surprise for Becky, and she would unveil that later. Lynch was then watching their conversation go down. Some minor additional development, but I liked that Becky was in tune with what was happening and didn't get necessarily blindsided by anything even though she kind of did. So we had Lynch against Stratton and James in a handicap match. This was the main event. The heels attacked and tore apart Becky during her entrance. That was the surprise. Uh, that led Lyra Valkyria down to get her back and clear the ring. The heels decided not to fight, so the faces tracked them down. 
And supposedly, it became a tag team match via referee discretion, which is not at all a thing that I believe has ever existed when it comes to making matches. Someone backstage has to make the match. They have to approve it. The referee can't just say, oh, this isn't unfair. Okay, you get to fight as well. But okay, at least we got a tag team match in the end. Lyra hit a nice springboard crossbody and a northern light suplex bridge. Then the faces hit stereo dual leg drops only for Lyra to eat a Tiffany Swanton bomb. Becky then countered into the inverted and regular double DDT combo. Becky eventually caught James with manhandle slam and Lyra flew in for her splash and the win. Stratton attacked Lynch with four steel chair shots after the bell. So Becky grabbed the mic and demanded their match be extreme rules. The match was a blast. Lyra continues to get rubbed from the top women in WWE. That's great to see. Previously, Rhea Ripley, now Becky Lynch. I won't discuss her signature moves this week. Don't worry. Becky really does raise the rent in NXT. It's not to say there aren't stars on the brand, but she's just a completely different level of star. All four of them showed out quite well. James was definitely elevated from working with the other three. Just a really solid TV main event from Bell to Bell and a good way to build multiple feuds at once. Ilya Dragunov backstage promised to finish the job against Carmelo Hayes. Dominic Mysterio approached Trick Williams, saying he'd make Melo take an L. Dom told Trick he knows what it's like to live in someone's shadow. Williams said he couldn't fit in a shadow, which is a good line, and nothing would drive a wedge between him and Melo. Then Joe Gacy and Ava approached Trick, saying they can tell he's lonely. Williams dissed them. I think maybe he made a get out reference, and they shot back that Melo doesn't care about him. All fine short segments on their own. They're doing Trick Gacy next week, so let's hope Williams wins. I don't understand why they're keeping Schism going. Maybe there's a plan, but this is just one of those Shawn Michaels things where it's like the man is booking his ass off in NXT, but there's always like one individual item that just doesn't make sense. And for me, Schism just does not make sense. So we had Mello against Dom in a champion versus champion match. Ilya sat ringside as Dom attacked before the bell. He eventually hit a 619 late, but Mello avoided a frog splash and hit a code breaker. Hayes then reversed Dom outside, throwing him into Dragunov on commentary. Then Dom flung Mello into Ilya and slapped Dragunov across the face out of nowhere, which was a shocking moment because who is Dominic Mysterio, the scared chicken shit heel, slapping Ilya Dragunov of all people across the face? That was actually like a stunning moment where People gasped in the crowd and it was deserved because it came out of absolute nowhere. So anyway, Dragunov storms into the ring. He beats the shit out of Dom, rightfully so. And he hits the falling forearm, like capper finishing type of move. And then Dom technically won via DQ because of that. Then Ilya went for Torpedo Moscow, only for Melo to jump in the ring for pretty much no reason that I could tell and take the move. As Dom walked out celebrating, Dragon Lee popped up behind him, hit him with a super kick. That got a nice pop. Mello later cut a parking lot promo ahead of a contract signing next week. So this was a solid match, bell to bell. It's kind of crazy just how much smoother Mello is than Dom in the ring. I mean, look, we know he's a better wrestler and he's a ridiculously high ceiling, but still, man. And again, good work from all involved here. The DQ protected Dom from taking yet another L as champion. Hayes running in for the torpedo. It just didn't really make any sense. I don't know why he would run in. He wouldn't be stopping Dragunov. He wouldn't be helping Dominic. So why are you coming back in the ring and taking that? I I don't know why. Uh, So anyway, look, the intensity was built for next week in the contract signing. That was a huge positive. And this is going to be a very worthy main event or co-main event, depending what they do with Becky Lynch at No Mercy. Let's move to the Global Heritage Invitational, which almost completely wrapped up this week. Tyler Bate of England fought Charlie Dempsey of the United States in Group A 
during level up on Friday. Dempsey hit a nice high angle German suplex. Bate came back with a helicopter, which is called an airplane spin, even though that doesn't make any sense. Uh, they had a tremendous counter sequence, probably six or eight different moves. Bait one with a jackknife cover. Fun match. I'm glad I took the time to watch it. That's probably the best compliment I can give. Then we had Tyler Bate, of course, of England against Butch, also of England, in what was the Group A final. This was obviously hot right at the bell. Bate did a great delayed suplex, uh, superplex off the ropes, plus a deadlift belly-to-back suplex. Butch countered Tyler Driver 97 with a triangle choke. Bate did such an intense helicopter spin that he actually had to pause before hitting the brain buster. I think he threw himself for a loop. Butch reversed Tyler Driver 97 for a false finish. Then Bate countered Bitter End into a DDT and hit Bitter End himself for another false finish. He also nailed the rebound lariat, but Butch got knees up to stop a corkscrew and hit Bitter End for another false finish. Then with less than 30 seconds left, Butch lifted Bate for a Bitter End style Mishinoku driver, which apparently is called Better End. I didn't know that. I perhaps missed it previously. And he got the win with his, let's call it super finisher. They hugged after the bell. Butch won Group A with five points over Tyler Bate, who had four. Axiom had one, and Charlie Dempsey had zero. It was an excellent match. There were a few too many false finishes for my taste, especially in a 12-minute bout. I know they're familiar with one another in kayfabe, but that shouldn't lead to more finishers. It should just lead to more counters, if anything. Ultimately, Butch winning made sense. He's on the main roster, and it was a good booking to go to the time limit. Four stars, A- minus for this match. Duke Hudson of Australia fought Joe Coffey of Scotland in Group B. Hudson hit a hurricanrana out of nowhere. Coffey also did a rare missile dropkick. Hudson then countered all the best for the Bells with a roll-up for the surprise win. That put Group B in a three-way tie with Coffey, Hudson, and Nathan Frazier all having four points, while Akira Tozawa, unfortunately, had zero, which was really disappointing. It was decided that the triple threat tiebreaker would be on NXT immediately on Tuesday night. So it was a fun bit of booking all around. Nothing much to praise, though. Hudson later doubted his stamina in the locker room after the match, only for Andre Chase to give him a rousing pep talk that got him back on his feet really pumped up. This segment was actually better than the entirety of the match that preceded it. So we went to the Group B final, last chance type of match. Frazier, Hudson, Coffee. Unlike the other matches, this one had no time limit. Hudson hit the Samoa Joe-style Uranagi out of the corner, only to get his bells rung classic style with the ring post. Duke tried but failed to repeat the finish of the first match. Frazier hit a springboard inverted DDT, simultaneous regular DDT combo, basically what Becky Lynch did later in the show. Then he countered Glasgow sendoff with a perfect super kick, only to get tossed like a cork with a release German suplex by Hudson, who also hit two boss man slams. Frazier then spiked Hudson upside down on his head with a hurricanrana and hit the Phoenix splash, only for coffee to break the fall, throw Frazier outside and hit all the best for the bells and get the win. Another terrific match the right winner solely because of the face versus heel dynamics in the final, but it did seem like Frazier had it, which made the finish notably strong. All in all, I would say it's a solid tournament with a solid results across the board. 3.75 stars B plus for this match. And now we get the final of Coffee against Butch. That should be really exciting next week on the go home to no mercy. D'Angelo family were evaluating their potential opponents, deciding who to invite to the table, aka who to give a title match to. Bronco Nima, Lucian Price, and Scripps were later playing dice in an alley, proud of being self-made. Price, I think, pitched the name OTM, but I don't really know what that was supposed to mean. 
But look how easy it was for them to just introduce a name with Bobby Lashley and the Street Profits still having nothing. This was a really interesting, divisive segment. A lot of people thought it was stereotypical, but Price and Nima, their legitimate gimmick is that they are from the streets. And Scripps, in reality, like Reggie, Reginald, the guy that you know as Carmela Somaliere, he was involved in gang stuff back when he was younger, when he was a teenager. So I know it might have seemed like like old school crime time, stereotypical WWE, but there's actually reality to what they were doing here. Also, they were just playing dice in an alley. It's not like they were doing anything too crazy. I thought it was an interesting segment on the show that set NXT apart from things you normally get on the main roster or in AEW, but I can definitely understand why people had a problem with it. And I'm not trying to suggest that having a problem with it is wrong. I'm just explaining why it didn't tweak me personally in any way. Uh, Hank and Tank backstage then cut a promo about being ready to face all comers. Tank Ledger, I just gotta say, this guy has big time charisma and he already has promo skills. I'm not saying strap a rock and put this guy in the main roster, but as much as Hank and Tank makes sense as a tag team in this division, I think it's kind of holding Tank down. I wouldn't be surprised if a year from now, we're talking about this guy as a North American champion or maybe even more. It just seems like he's charisma and talent plus right now. Briggs and Jensen backstage blamed Fallon Henley for recruiting Miles Bourne, who cost them the match last week. Briggs was pissed that Henley was defending him when Baron Corbin came out of a massage room saying, hey, quit acting like it's high school. Thank you. So much of NXT is high school drama, the storylines. So it was great for Corbin to call this out. Briggs got in Corbin's face and it was contentious between them. I would love to see a singles match next week, Briggs against Corbin. I've said for a long time, Briggs is immensely better than Jensen in pretty much every way. So giving him that type of opportunity would be awesome. Thea Hale was freaking out going shopping with JC Jane, who picked out, as one would expect, a bunch of black and red leather clothes for her, skirts, really tight dresses, things like that. Thea did a whole try-on fashion show deal, and yeah. Gonna look good, but she's got me saying, hey now! The idea is that they're going to unveil the new Thea Hale at some point, one would presume next week, but maybe it'll be after No Mercy. And lastly, Eddie Thorpe was back in the forest at the tree, Dijak slapped with his belt. Thorpe called him out for trying to make him a savage by desecrating his land. Then he challenged Dijak to a strap match. This is gonna be on TV next week, not at No Mercy, which is interesting because of the stipulation. I really don't care much for this feud, but let's go ahead and see if the match delivers before we completely crap on it, like I have been for most of the last few weeks. So that was NXT this week. You know, not too much, I would say, developed, though we do now have five matches set for NXT. No mercy, of course, we already knew Carmelo Hayes against Ilya Dragunov for the NXT Championship. Now we have Becky Lynch against Tiffany Stratton. This is a new one uh, in an extreme rules match for the NXT Women's Championship. We also already knew about Braun Breaker against Baron Corbin and Noam Dar against the winner of Butch versus Coffee this coming week. So those are four that are now set in stone. The fifth was supposed to be Dominic Mysterio defending the North American Championship against Mustafa Ali. Obviously, earlier we discussed Ali uh, getting his release from WWE via mutual agreement. It stands to reason that it's possible Ali might still work the next week of TV, even though he has been released. Let's remember going back in the early days, I think it was of the pandemic, when WWE did their first round of releases. Uh, again, they're under 90-day clauses where they're still getting paid and theoretically can be utilized for TV or whatever the case might be. They took Tyler Breeze, who was sitting out 
having been released, basically doing nothing, waiting for those 90 days. They brought him over to Raw. He had a really good match on TV and and a really good promo, I think, as well on TV and ultimately lost. And then we never saw him again in WWE. They theoretically could do that with Ali. He could work Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, then salute, go off and be done. Or they literally are going to have to change this match. Currently, Dominic has a North American title match scheduled with Dragon Lee, as we discussed earlier, on Raw this week. They could change the title and do a rematch then at No Mercy. Uh, They could do a DQ or something like that and then do a rematch at No Mercy, maybe involve Rey Mysterio again. Lots of different things that they can do. It'll be interesting to see the way the No Mercy card fills out. You also have to expect, obviously, there being a... Uh, tag team championship match, D'Angelo family against one of those other teams. Maybe they do a number one contendership this coming Tuesday on the Go Home NXT before No Mercy. Now let's move to AEW where we have an absolute ton to discuss both between AEW Dynamite Grand Slam, Collision and Rampage, obviously all from this week. There's just a lot to get to here. Starting with my regular roundup on the three shows. Look, Rampage, I'm just going to be honest, folks. It was absolute trash Friday night other than the main event. Like it actually angered me that I spent, I didn't spend an hour, but 30 minutes of my life watching that show. Collision, very solid, obviously way better than Rampage as always. Didn't find it to be a tentpole collision. It certainly was not one of the better episodes, but there was enough on it where I had no problem obviously watching the entire two hours. I found it really entertaining. And then Dynamite Grand Slam, I would call it a home run, not to really play into the Grand Slam terminology, even though technically that's referring to tennis, but it was a very successful show. Uh, There were a number of really high quality matches, some interesting storyline development that we got. Easily the best of the three shows this week. I wouldn't say it necessarily stood out for me among recent AEW shows. I think it was last week or two weeks ago, I gave AEW credit for putting on a great combination of Dynamite and Collision. Um, This didn't necessarily live up to that for me, but there was a lot to talk about, and that's positive. Also, it was a very entertaining show. One other item I wanted to mention before we get into all the recap and results, there were two weird moments on Collision uh, Saturday, and I have to imagine that they were purposeful, but one was a camera zoomed out during an interview segment, and a director walked in and snapped his arms like they were a clapperboard, and he's like, take 22. And then he gave a three, two, one countdown before the interview started. And then later, they actually showed a director with a clapperboard stand in front of the camera and clap it. And then they went ahead and did another segment. So you have to imagine they're telling some type of story with that. But I cannot, for the life of me, figure out what that would be. Like, maybe it involves QTV somehow, but that doesn't make any sense because it's the regular broadcast as opposed to QTV, which is clearly fake and and tabloid and something different that they're doing. So again, I'm sure there is something to this and maybe it gets revealed and it's like, oh, that's so smart. But off the top right now, it seemed really strange to do it twice in one show, different ways. And I don't think it was even the same person doing it. So again, uh, maybe this is just the planting of seeds for something that'll happen later. I wanted to mention it because it didn't really fit anywhere else. So let's start surprisingly with Rampage, where Matt Seidel and Christopher Daniels fought the kingdom. Excalibur literally promoted this as a Ring of Honor match on AEW TV. If I want to watch Ring of Honor, I'll watch Ring of Honor. Kingdom obviously won after a pretty terrible finisher. It was like an assisted piggyback kick or something like that. It's called Proton Pack. 
Not good. Like, shockingly bad. Uh, Matt Taven cut a promo after challenging Adam Cole and MJF for the ROH Tag Team titles. That could have been an email. On Dynamite, the kingdom was by Roderick Strong's bedside in a hospital room. When he woke up yelling for Adam with Cole walking in seconds later, kingdom had to head to Grand Slam, and Cole said he was just stopping by to say hi because he had to get MJF's back at Grand Slam against Samoa Joe. Later, MJF cut a promo exiting a car when Cole got a text from Strong saying it was an emergency and he had to run back to the hospital. Now, this was meant to be corny comedy. And I know for a fact, because I saw people on Twitter and Reddit talk about it, that some people loved this. That's great. I'm sorry for me, this came off completely stupid, but more important than it being stupid, it was illogical. Even with the comedic bits like the rosary beads, they were rubbing those, and the bed squeaking, that was legitimately funny for sure. But here's a couple problems with this. Number one, why would Roderick Strong be in a hospital in New York? And why would wherever that hospital is located be in such short driving distance that Adam Cole was able to go there and back for dynamite on Wednesday, especially in New York traffic? Really doesn't make any sense. But beyond that, how could Cole not see this guy is fine after the match that he had, you know, the one against Samoa Joe, only to now fake the neck injury again? Why is he not noticing that live like we talked about last week? And then why would he not notice it if anyone showed him a clip of it after the fact? Also, why is a grown man crying out for Adam Cole constantly? Why is Cole running back to the hospital when there's nothing he can do with Roddy surrounded by doctors and nurses in theory? If there was an emergency, it wouldn't be Roddy calling Cole. It would be a doctor or a nurse calling Cole. So again, for me, it's just such a deep suspension of disbelief and such a deep idea in the head that Cole, who just a couple weeks ago told Strong, you're not my best friend anymore, MJF is, for him to now be so concerned about him and to suspend all this disbelief for a little bit of comedy that for me isn't even that funny, I find it very difficult. I just do, and I'm not really enjoying it, even though I do respect the fact that Roderick Strong is getting this over and he is not a character actor historically in his wrestling career. So credit to Roderick Strong, but it's just not really hitting for me. So let's continue with Dynamite. We have the AEW Championship MJF against Samoa Joe, obviously the main event of Grand Slam. MJF got a Bret Hart callback entrance with the kid yelling out, seeing his favorite wrestler, and then MJF, in this case, giving him a scarf instead of the glasses. He also told the kid he was adopted, which was classic MJF. Also classic MJF was him coming out with a Mets-themed entrance in New York. Of course this dude is a Mets fan. That explains so much to me. Uh, MJF flipped off the ropes and hit a kangaroo kick to a big pop. By the way, a kangaroo kick in a really serious title match. Uh, before going full Ultimate Warrior on the top rope, Joe came back with a great Death Valley driver on the corner part of the ring apron. Shit looked like it hurt. False finish, obviously, there. Joe then hit a Uranagi into a tilted table at ringside. No DQ. Joe exposed the concrete ringside. Commentary pointed out it's a tennis court. It's not concrete. It's the same idea. MJF stopped a move by biting Joe's thigh, then sold his neck trying to move himself, only to eat a pile driver on the exposed court concrete whatever. Joe looked demonic after hitting this move with five trainers running to MJF's aid, rolled inside, false finish. MJF came back with a great flip over counter into a Liger bomb. Joe got MJF in the beginnings of a muscle buster, so MJF grabbed the referee and hit his patented mule kick low blow. 
Then he grabbed the dynamite diamond ring and winked at the camera, but Joe shoved the referee between them and the referee got to see the ring. So he took it, threw it away. Joe caught MJF with a low blow when that happened and then hit Muscle Buster to win the AEW title. No, for a 2.9 false finish, Joe then knocked MJF out in the Coquina Clutch. So Cole ran down, starts banging on the canvas to wake him up. The referee does the three arm drops in the slowest sequence I've ever seen. MJF powers out at the third one. The referee dips out of the ring to avoid getting hit. He sold an injury. I think he may have actually gotten injured. Cole distracted Joe. MJF then grabbed the tag team rope and briefly like placed it around his neck. It's such a short rope. It's a tiny little rope. You're not getting any leverage on it. And then puts Joe in the coquina clutch or a rear naked choke with the referee kind of getting back in the ring, looking at Joe for three seconds and calling a knockout victory without even raising Joe's arm once. Cole ran into the ring and grabbed the rope to put in his pocket so the referee didn't see it. Joe shoved Cole. MJF got between them, selling the neck. So Joe offered him a hand and MJF shook it. It was one of those, okay, you really are a piece of shit like me, respect type of deals, which was the perfect way to end the match based on their characters, their respective histories, and the storyline going into it. So let me start with heavy positives because this was a terrific match from an entertainment standpoint with some great spots and plenty of babyface moments. Unlike the rest of Dynamite, this was super smooth with really high level work, a great crowd response throughout, and no major botches. Samoa Joe being an immense asshole throughout and MJF resorting to the heel tactics while still being a babyface, I'm your scumbag, that type of stuff. Both appropriate character touches and obviously the wrestling was superb. I'm going four stars, A minus. You'll understand in a moment why it's not higher than that. The positives, I think, far exceeded the negatives because at the end, wrestling's about entertainment. And this was a really strong main event for a special Grand Slam show that, by the way, did a fantastic rating that we'll talk about at the end of today's show. But let's talk about the negatives. The finish was patently absurd for numerous reasons. First, you had the referee applying a completely different standard to the champion and the challenger. He gave MJF the benefit of three arm raises with like five seconds between each one. Then he just decides right away that Joe was KO'd and done. And if your answer to that is, well, Silver King, one of them had their eyes open and the other closed. Bullshit. That's never been the rule. Also, at the angle the referee took, I'm not sure he could have seen that. If they wanted that to be the rule and explanation, it should have been established as the reason by commentary knowing it would be used in the finish. Then there's the massively over-the-top babyface booking of MJF, which is at an absurd level, I would argue, already exceeds even Cody Rhodes and is second overall, maybe only, to Roman Reigns as a babyface. Let's remember, this is a guy who was crying his eyes out two weeks ago because of his neck, saying he couldn't feel his arms or legs. He enters a match, he's still selling the neck. Then he basically escaped three finishing sequences involving the neck. You want to do the concrete pile driver kick out? Okay, fine. But that and a heavily protected neck focused muscle buster with a low blow moments later? Okay, maybe. Both of those and a coquina clutch with the benefit of three arm raises because Cole banged on the ring apron? I mean, give me a break, especially for a TV match. It was just so massively over the top for me. One of those is fine. Two, I can stomach. Three was just ridiculous, especially because Joe didn't even get the arm raises himself. And then the finish where MJF grabs this tiny little piece of string that basically provided no additional leverage. And yet this guy who has 
never used a submission move like this or one with one, is able to choke out a guy 75 to 100 pounds larger than him who has not taken anywhere near the punishment that MJF did in the match. He's able to get choked out in less than half the time MJF was in the same submission, even though that guy uses it as his own finisher. These are points you cannot argue. So all in all, a great main event, but one with that was definitely overbooked. I should also note, when Cole ran in, he badly hurt himself, either an ankle or a knee. It seems like it's an ankle. He apparently went to the hospital, left on crutches. Now, I've sprained an ankle. Seriously, I've had high ankle sprains. You can end up on crutches for a high-grade regular ankle sprain or a high ankle sprain. No question about it. Let's hope that's all it is and that he's okay in the near term because obviously there's a really hot program going on. Not just that, Cole has been dealing with so many different injury issues. He had the concussion problem. We just want him to be healthy. So again, best wishes to Adam Cole coming out of this. Let's move to collision for a moment. Brian Danielson and Claudio Castagnoli fought Ricky Starks and Big Bill. This opened the show. Claudio hit a swinging cutter on Bill for a false finish. Then Bill hit a choke slam. Claudio swung Starks. There was a girl or woman in the crowd screaming the entire match as if she was actively being murdered or something like that. It was immensely distracting, super annoying. Claudio countered a spear with a European uppercut. Then he broke a fall after a spear. We talk about Braun Breaker having the best spear in wrestling. I actually think Starks has the worst, at least for a man. After countering something off the ropes, Starks low blow Danielson and hit Rochambeau for the win. The idea being they are now one and one. Some good action throughout the match. It made storyline sense coming off last week. Just thought it'd be better than it came across being. It made sense for Starks to get the win. This way, they're continuing the feud. Not really much else to it. Starks later was pissed that Brian got a promo package for a match at WrestleDream when he just beat him and doesn't have a match on the card. As such, he challenged Danielson to a Texas death match. Now, that sounds like a banger. It also seems way too close to what they've already done in the strap match. They're both extreme type of matches. Why not go with a regular singles bout to prove who's the better wrestler, given that's the one thing they have not done yet? So we'll see what happens in the Texas death match. I would have just preferred one-on-one though. On collision, Eddie Kingston cut a taped promo reiterating his feud with Claudio Castagnoli and saying Rene Paquette told him to fix the beef. Eddie said he's been trying, but this is it. He also said New York is his home and there's no chance he lets Claudio beat him in Arthur Ashe Stadium. He closed by saying, quote, I'm gonna fuck you up in New York, motherfucker. Obviously it was bleeped. Sold. Excellent promo. Even if it wasn't Kingston's best, it was fantastic. The intensity was on point as always and it helped the match come across as a big deal. So on Dynamite, we had title versus title. Kingston, the NJPW strong openweight champion. Claudio, the ROH champion. This opened the show. Uh, Eddie got a great pop, definitely a ton of strong style throughout. That made it more of a methodical match. There was a 2.9 kick out after a European uppercut. Kingston then kicked out of a Ricola bomb and a false finish. Eddie hit a snap German suplex and Northern Lights bomb for another false finish. Then he hit a back fist and a fall down power bomb for the one, two, three to a huge pop. Claudio offered a handshake after the bell and just like he said he would, uh, the handshake. And they also shook hands. Kingston celebrated at the end. This was an incredible moment for Eddie. So well-deserved, so well-earned. Tony Schiavone said it was one of the best moments in Dynamite history. And you know what? For me, at least, I think it's an easy top 10. I do. I was very excited watching this and very excited by the finish. The match was probably 3.75 stars B+. 
but the emotion engendered by Kingston, not just given his story, but with Grand Slam in New York, it just made the entire thing stand out. I thought it was great. On Collision, there was a 60-second video package that aired about the long-term relationship between Kenny Omega and Kota Ibushi as an explanation for the Don Callis challenge last week on Dynamite. This was definitely valuable for fans who don't know the relationship. I also felt like it could have been twice as long, more detailed to really hammer it home. We also had Katsuyori Shibata, uh, who used Siri on his iPhone to say he will wrestle at WrestleDream, no opponent named, nothing specific about that. It just happened uh, on Collision, so I wanted to mention it there. On Dynamite, we had Sammy Guevara against Chris Jericho. Sammy came out in a light-up vest like Y2J used to. He also had someone random wrapping his entrance. Guevara hit a code breaker, then completely missed a moonsault outside as part of three consecutive botched moves both ways. Then he delivered a flying cutter. Walls of Jericho came next with Sammy hitting an avalanche cutter after. Jericho got knees up on a springboard moonsault. Guevara had to slide into place just to take a lion salt. Sammy then hit a GTH, but Jericho countered a shooting star press with a code breaker for the one, two, three. They shook hands and hugged after the bell before Sammy kicked him in the nuts, threw him down. Jericho slid down his body in a direct callback to what Shawn Michaels did to Jericho at WrestleMania 19. I should say Jericho did to Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 19. Uh, so again, direct callback here. It was the second significant WWE callback on Dynamite, the other one being MJF and the Bret Hart role, but both of them were good natured and positive. It wasn't taking shots at WWE. Uh, so Don Callis then walked down and put his arm around Sammy after the heel turn. They left together. They declined an interview backstage before Callis kept Sammy from attacking Daniel Garcia. He stared him down seeing the turn happen and was obviously pissed off about it. So this was a superb finish to conclude a match that was really robotic in spots with, as mentioned, a lot of failed moves and sloppiness. Really not good. In terms of Jericho winning on one hand, you can roll your eyes because he beat another young talent. On the other hand, it was necessary for him to win given the story they're telling, which was immensely telegraphed, by the way. But let's not get it twisted as if Guevara is some young kid. He's 30. And his entire AEW career to this point has been served underneath Jericho, only for him to finally break away and now serve underneath Callus, rather than just turn heel and be on his own, or at least be the leader of his own group. Is this actually going to help him in the long run? I guess we'll have to wait and see. You have to believe Callus will be the one cutting promos for him. It seems at least to start, he's either the third wheel overall, or at least the second priority for Callus, with Konosuke Takeshka first. Maybe if Garcia joins and they become a real tag team and they win the titles, that could be something. It just seems like that's going to be his next feud and not so much someone that he's going to team up with. On Rampage, Britt Baker said backstage that AEW, the way she built it, hasn't gone as planned, just like the last few months haven't gone as planned for her. Baker said she's championship material and will become the first woman in AEW to hold the main title and the TBS title. She offered a challenge 24 hours later at Collision. That feels like a match that actually deserves a much bigger stage than randomly on a Saturday night with 24 hours notice. Now, before that match could even happen, Chris Statlander had a planned title defense. So the TBS championship was on the line on Rampage. Stat defending against Jade Cargill, who you will remember returned last week. Let me start by saying the gear that Jade wore in this match. It looked good, but she's got me saying, hey now. But the match also made me say, hey now. Cargill hit a delayed vertical suplex and then they did mirror kip-ups. Stat countered into a blue thunderbomb 
off a distraction. Stat reverse jaded into a forward roll. Then Cargill hit a choke slam. Stat broke a jaded attempt by pushing Cargill back into the ropes, hitting a discus lariat and scissor kick before nailing Friday Night Fever to retain the title in 10 minutes. They shook hands and hugged in the ring after the bell, with Stat actually raising Jade's arm. Strong work both ways here, no doubt about it. 3.5 stars B. This was probably Jade's best match in AEW. I thought the hug happened off air, so watching it happen here, it became quite clear that Cargill was leaving, and there's not really much more to say about that. We've already talked about Jade um, on multiple episodes, I believe last week on this show, this episode, I mean, and then obviously the WWE show on Tuesday. So go back and listen to those if you want more about her and potentially going to WWE, but this does seem to have been her last match in AEW. So we fast forward to Collision, the TBS title on the line, Stat against Baker. This was appropriately the main event. Stat hit a couple blue thunder bombs. Baker came back with a stomp for a false finish. Stat broke a lockjaw attempt, then stopped Panama Sunrise. Baker hit a Canadian Destroyer, Angel's Wings, and a stomp for a poorly counted false finish. Baker took Stat to the canvas in a standing lockjaw, but Stat simply rolled her back, catching a pinning combination for a 1-2-3 to retain the title. Now, Collision was in Penn State, so the fans were completely behind Britt, but the baby faces shook hands after the bell as Britt kept her eyes locked on the title. Really solid stuff, bell to bell. Obviously, that could be precipitating a uh, heel turn, perhaps, for Britt. That would make a lot of sense. I'm going to grade this actually the same as Stat and Jade, 3.5 stars and a B. The finishing sequence was better here, but the former match was stronger. Either way, back-to-back quality women's main events for AEW, which is probably the first time that's ever happened. And Stat comes out of it looking stronger as a champion. She still hasn't had a few to sink her teeth into, but at least the matches have substantially improved with the TBS title, or at least they did this week. On Collision, Tony Storm was all dolled up, getting interviewed by RJ City. It was one question where she said nothing, but she did her like normal acting. It was said we would get more, but we didn't get more on Collision. And there was nothing on Dynamite, even though she had a title match on Dynamite. So I don't really know what the point of this was. On Dynamite, the women's championship, Soraya against Tony Storm. Tony got a new like 1920s silent movie entrance that really fit her new aesthetic. Storm knocked Ruby Soho down outside, then used some weapon I missed, I don't know what it was, on Soraya for a false finish kickout. She also hit consecutive draping DDTs at one point. Tony ripped off the bottom turnbuckle and grabbed spray paint with Ruby stealing it and then passing it to Soraya, who sprayed Storm and hit Nightcap for a false finish. Soraya refused to slam Tony's head into the exposed turnbuckle for some reason. Then she caught a boot, Storm did, but acquiesced as Soraya begged her not to do anything with it, so she put it gently on the canvas. Then Storm kissed Soraya on the lips. It looked good, but she's got me saying, hey now! Soraya, excuse me. And... Then she hit Storm Zero for a false finish. You guys know, by the way, I don't overuse the hey now, but it just happened to be applicable three times on this episode. Uh, Storm missed the hip attack into the exposed turnbuckle, selling it as if it hurt her when it was impossible because she didn't come anywhere near touching the exposed turnbuckle on the move, nor could it have even hurt that much anyway. But Soraya took advantage and hit a nightcap a second time for the win. This was Soraya's best AEW match by a legitimate mile. Storm did carry some of the water, but Soraya was very good also. Credit to her amid all the criticism she's received from everyone, us included. Not a highly rated match by me, but a rare AEW match where the storytelling was as much in focus as the wrestling. It was a bunch of fun. Storm's gimmick was the focus. 
and she was able to shine at the end, even in defeat, that's always a positive. On Rampage, Lucha Brothers and Hardy Boys fought Butcher, Blade, Jay Lethal, and Jeff Jarrett. You may be asking, hey, Silver King, why exactly did this match happen? You can ask me that 10,000 times, going, I'm never going to have an answer for you. There were like a dozen people ringside. Ray Phoenix got the fall because he had a title match scheduled for Wednesday. Why not let him get a singles victory like usual? Like, how did this help him? Satnam Singh did a double clothesline of the Hardys after the bell on the ramp. So the Righteous came out, stood over them, and did nothing else. On collision, the Hardys fought the Righteous. Uh, Vincent ate side effect, but Dutch pulled Jeff Hardy off the ropes when he tried a swanton bomb. Then he threw Matt into the steel steps before the heels combined for an off-the-chest assisted cutter to pin Jeff in the center of the ring. Commentary sold it as a massive upset, which maybe. Uh, Dutch said they are two leaders who seek truth in liars' eyes. Vincent somehow tied it into MJF and Cole as the ROH Tag Team Champions. Look, I'd call the Righteous relatively unimpressive here, and the whole aesthetic was like a bastardized, B-level, underwhelming, preacher-style Wyatt family. Actually, and you guys, you guys know I don't really use this word. It was cringe. It just was. I, I don't really get it. It's not for me, at least. On Dynamite, the international championship was on the line. John Moxley against Ray Phoenix. Mox got attacked before the bell with Phoenix hitting a flying somersault off the elevated ramp. It seemed like Mox got rocked by this move, which was like the second move in the entire match. Phoenix came over, grabbed his arm to check on him because Mox did not stand up right away which I think he was supposed to after taking that move. So Mox hit a stomp inside, then draping Paradigm Shift off the barricade. Phoenix came back with a run, including a frog splash. He totally missed a draping leg drop off the top rope outside. Mox stomped Phoenix at the base of an elevated ramp, and then he hit a pile driver. Phoenix then hit a flying senton and a cradle tombstone pile driver with Mox not kicking out, even though the referee stopped counting at 2.9. His shoulders were flat on the canvas. Commentary didn't know what to do. Nobody knew what to do. It was clear Mox couldn't move watching this live. Yet the referee, Rick Knox, surprise fucking surprise, totally screwed up his job in the moment. Mox first seemed, and I'm not a great lip reader, but it seemed like he said, fuck you to Knox for screwing it up. Then he whispered something to Phoenix, who picked him up again and had a second cradle tombstone, holding him in position for the one, two, three to win the title. Mox looked like, he didn't just get hurt. He got knocked the hell out. I thought he got a stinger. Now, he was diagnosed with a concussion, which same kind of family to some degree. But a stinger is when you take a move or something like that happens where your spine, at least in some way, I think gets compressed and you feel almost paralyzed for a very short period of time. And that's what it looked like with Mox on both occasions where he just was not able to move, which is really, really scary, obviously, uh, in both of those circumstances. Now, that can only be the explanation why this ended the way it did. And it came after the moment, like I said, at the start of the match. So I wouldn't be surprised if what happened later was a cumulative type of situation. After the bell, Mox stayed in the center of the ring. Cameras cut away to just Phoenix celebrating. You could tell Phoenix wasn't expecting to win the title. Commentary, um, the announcer, Justin Roberts, wasn't expecting to call it. So this all had to happen live here. And they did a pretty decent job after the immense screw-up by Rick Knox. But obviously the concern was about Mox and no one was really celebrating Phoenix winning the title. Even if that was the plan or if it had been the plan, you would have had Penta running down and there would have been more stuff happening. Going in, I thought it would be a great idea to use Mox as a transitional champion 
with Phoenix winning the title, given what they did before All In. But I just cannot imagine that was actually the plan. There were a couple botches in this match, which was a trend on the entire night, as I said. But there was also a lot of terrific work both ways. I'd say it didn't live up to expectations, but it was simultaneously a fun TV match that ended with a really obviously unplanned and sad result. Best wishes for Mox, obviously. And even though it wasn't the plan, I truly hope they keep the title on Phoenix and don't just switch it back. We've been talking about him being deserving of a singles run pretty much his entire time in AEW. At least give him a couple months with it, as long as you can explain it in storyline. On Rampage, Swerve Strickland, Brian Cage, and Prince Nana were angry about the Young Bucks preventing them from attacking Hangman Page last week. So Swerve set a six-man challenge that included everyone except for him at Grand Slam. So the only guy I want to watch is the one who won't wrestle. Kidding, I like Hangman also, but still not really an attractive match booking. The Hung Bucks accepted the challenge on Collision, saying they wanted the ROH Trios titles on the line. So I didn't know those guys were ROH Trios champions because I watch AEW. So at least it makes sense why that is the trio teaming together and Swerve is not, in this case, still disappointing as a fan. I'd prefer to see Swerve. On Dynamite, Christian Cage in a backstage promo suggested Darby Allen face him and Luchasaurus in a triple threat match for the TNT title with Sting barred from ringside. He fake slipped up, calling it a handicap match, and then took a shot at Nick Wayne also. Really interesting piece of booking here. The idea of Luchasaurus decimating Darby only for Christian to jump on him for the pin and claim the title, like for real, that could make for a really hot moment. But AEW could also use it the opposite way. Christian tries to do that, Luchasaurus gets pissed, choke slams him, and then Darby beats one of them for the title. Definitely interesting concept. I'm going to be curious to watch this match. They piqued my curiosity um, for a title match booking, which does not always happen in AEW. On collision, FTR fought the Iron Savages in a non-title match. FTR won with a superplex splash combo. At least it didn't take their finisher to beat these heavy machinery ripoffs. The workhorsemen stormed into the ring after the bell. So FTR laid down the titles and offered their hands to accept the title challenge. The workhorsemen. Thrilling. This is what the tag team division has become. On Rampage, Aussie Open beat two jobbers in 43 seconds. Then on Collision, they beat two other jobbers in 46 seconds. No promo on Rampage. On Collision, they asked if FTR was paying attention and said they were just as accomplished as them. They called their shot at WrestleDream on the one-year anniversary of their last match. So we had three total matches here that lasted like a grand total of five minutes just for a challenge that could have been made in a promo segment. It's not even that exciting of a feud. The crowd did not give a shit after this was laid down. On collision, Scorpio Sky fought Andrade El Idolo. Sky cut a tape promo saying he was back and ready to fight. They promoted his return, you'll remember, when collision started months ago. Apparently, he got hurt. I was recently wondering what happened to him, so I'm glad to see Scorpio Sky back. Andrade had a great basement dropkick to Sky's knees, following with a figure eight for the submission victory. Fans popped for the Charlotte Flair reference. Mediocre match. I was actually surprised. Jay White interrupted after saying Andrade was paying attention to them last week because he wanted to be in his spotlight. Flimsy reason to create a match. Andrade didn't say a word about this, but White's promo was fun and the match should bang. On Collision, Powerhouse Hobbs said in a video package that the next chapter in his book is destruction. If none of the chapters have resulted in him winning, why should I give a shit about the next one? Miro then said in a video package that he broke Hobbs' back but didn't make him humble, so they'll have a rematch down the line. What is he, the Iron Sheik? Then Miro asked God why he taunted him with his wife, promising anyone who doesn't want to be redeemed, he'd literally kill and send to heaven. I mean, like, really? What is this shit? Block at zero! On Collision, Keith Lee backstage was interrupted by Shane Taylor, who announced 
Lee Moriarty is now part of his group. No build to that, by the way. Didn't even know he had a group. Taylor said they don't run like Keith suggested last week. So it seems like it's going to be Keith against Moriarty and then probably Taylor. That's fine if they're starting to build Keith up. Presumably, AEW wants to get another meat chant from the crowd when you get Keith and Shane together. If this is the entirety of what they're doing with Keith, obviously that'll be disappointing. If this is just the first step, that could be a huge positive. On Rampage, the acclaimed and Billy Gunn fought the Outrunners and Peter Avalon. This was the longest two minutes and 43 seconds of my life. Why did this match happen? Who the fuck are the Outrunners? It was non-title, okay, but still. Dark Order interrupted the celebration, challenging for the titles. I think they just lost a match, a key match recently. The acclaimed asked why. Evil Uno said they climbed from the bottom to the top. I'd argue they're lower than they've been in years. They decided to do a one-on-one match to prove themselves. The slight saving grace was the faces did rock, paper, scissors to determine who would fight in the singles match. And they just kept throwing scissors, which was pretty funny. And then on Collision, we got that match. Bowens against John Silver. Max Caster's rap was okay. Silver took the mic saying they're doing scissoring wrong, which, hey, facts. And he also said their match contract says Caster and Gunn were barred from ringside. As Bowens was celebrating outside after a big move, Uno in a red and black mask appeared, threw him into the ring post, and gave Silver an opening for a blindside shot and the one, two, three in a protected finish. This just really is not hitting for me in a trios feud. The title match ultimately will be solid. I know Acclaimed is over and their baby faces and people like them. I really think taking the titles off House of Black was a mistake. On collision, Orange Cassidy ate some Doritos from a bag that Hook was holding while casually suggesting they tag in a match at Grand Slam. Commentary said it would be a huge match. There wasn't even an opponent listed. I guess this was on the Rampage version of Grand Slam, so it was taped, and I guess we'll talk about it next week. And lastly, on Rampage, QTV had Johnny TV in the host role again, putting over QT Marshall for a success in Mexico. He did this like kind of funny handshake with Aaron Solo. Then Harley Cameron almost stabbed a fake luchador with scissors. So I just want to understand, Tony Khan is paying Johnny to do this random segment every other week and not wrestle. How is this on national television? I just don't get it. So that is AEW this week. As you can tell, there were things I absolutely loved. Uh, The women's division, I thought, had a banner week across AEW. And obviously the Samoa Joe um, MJF main event, I had problems with it, don't get me wrong, but I thought it was extremely entertaining. Uh, But there's a lot of down parts as well. That said, hey, credit to AEW where it belongs. They did 984,000 viewers and a 0.36 demo. Uh, The viewership, I think, is their highest since February of this year. The demo, the best in the calendar year. So they put together a tentpole show and delivered a tentpole number. So again, credit to them for this. It was entertaining, but would it have been uh, the way I would have booked it? No, and that's really what the show is about. We talk about what happened. I give you my analysis, and I tell you how I might have done things differently. But folks, look, this was a ridiculous edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So much to cover between the WWE releases, the SmackDown News, NXT, and AEW. I appreciate all of you listening to this show. As always, don't forget, we will be back next week on Tuesday for our next WWE episode. On Thursday, right now, that episode is slated to serve as a NXT No Mercy and AEW Wrestle Dream Ultimate Preview. So two in one. Also right now, that is slated to be episode 499 of Getting Over. It is my plan to have a special 500th episode of the show on Friday next week. In fact, we may even bump up the days. Maybe the Thursday show gets published Wednesday night and the 500th episode gets published Thursday. 
regardless, no matter what order. I have some plans in place. There's some irons in the fire. We're trying to get some special stuff going for episode 500. It's difficult with it happening during football season on the same week as a premium live event and a pay-per-view. I'm going to do my absolute best to bring you something special. If we don't do it, and episode 500 winds up being the NXT No Mercy um, instant analysis, I'll figure out something that we can do in the near future to celebrate 500 episodes of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. You may wonder, Silver King, what can I do to celebrate 500 episodes of Getting Over? Well, guess what? There is plenty that you can do. First, you can remember that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about Defy. And you can head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave a five-star rating. Hey, leave one at both. On Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review, because if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. If you don't already, you can also follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. But don't just follow us, retweet us, like our tweets, share our stuff, quote tweet us. There's so many things you can do to help promote the show. And one of the best ways is on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can also become an official Getting Overhead by remembering... I happen to love the number five. And let's hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. You get news posts every week. You get bonus audio after every major show as frequently as I can do it. And your financial contributions directly support getting over. If you are already a getting overhead, you can reach out to us if you want to give us a financial contribution via Venmo. That would be fantastic because we're paying for all these AEW pay-per-views. We're obviously also paying for hosting for the podcast. Or if you prefer to do it through buymeacoffee.com, you can buy a meat and you can do any uh, denomination of $5 or more, 5, 10, 15, 20, whatever the number is. Um, You can buy meat and contribute to us financially. That way is just like a little bonus, a little tip. But we're not here to really ask for your money. We want to provide you bonus content. And that is why the buymeacoffee.com slash getting over website exists. It's extra content, it's financial support, all wrapped together as one. I want to thank all of you for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I want to thank Vintage Chris Vanini for joining us for the instant analysis opener of this show. We will be back on Tuesday. At this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.